Hello, Topical, and welcome back to your MBA coverage from your best MBA correspondents in the business, Ryan Moret and Arad Faruqi. Hello, everybody. So today we're going to be talking about the past uh, week in the MBA. Our uh, specials uh, are probably going to be uh, the playoffs that are coming up, uh, what the playoffs maybe should look like. Should it be a 16-team tournament? And uh, maybe uh, should there be weighted uh, series games like a the home team gets maybe five games and the away team gets two games instead of four and three. Uh, talk about some of the uh, developing players, players like uh, Gary Harris and Drew Holiday. Uh, talk a little bit about advanced metrics, some difficult questions that I've really been struggling over in my MBA following. And yeah, let's get right into things. So Arad, uh, usually the one to watch NBA games. What have you seen in the past week? Oh, we had a pretty. It was a pretty exciting week of basketball, actually, in my opinion. Uh, since the last game, since the last week, that Sunday that we watched the Sun Hawks game, um, I watched the Cavs play. Uh, I I think last week we covered the Cavs quite a bit. I watched the Cavs Pistons, the Cavs Nuggets. I watched Rockets Thunder. I watched uh, Cavs Nuggets. I watched Rockets Bucks. I watched Celtics Timberwolves, Spurs Warriors, Cavs Clippers, Rockets Raptors, Spurs Thunder. And uh, earlier today, Warriors Timberwolves. So some great games this week. Okay, well, uh, I know before the podcast, you uh, wanted to get right into the Timberwolves uh, Warriors game today. So I'm just going to refer the floor to you. What'd you think? So uh, today, I-, I thought it was a very interesting because um, so Steph Curry is currently out with a uh, an ankle tweak. Um, so he missed the game against the or he he exited the game against the Spurs um, on Thursday night. Uh, he entered. He left the game uh, in the first two minutes of the game. Actually, he landed awkwardly. Yeah, I saw um, that. He, he left that game, and um, for the majority of that game, uh, it was it was a pretty it was a very 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 tightly contested game. It came down to um, the free throw game. Lamarcus Aldridge uh, wisely he he chucked up a three, but he got fouled. But <laughs> he missed one of his three free throws. Then they had to they had to intentionally foul. They sent Durant to the line, where Durant also missed a free throw. So it <laughs> came down to the Spurs having to. Um, they, uh, Bryn, Bryn Forbes got a wide open three and he missed. Um, so that's Steph Curry's been out since then. And then Jimmy Butler, obviously, a few weeks ago tore his meniscus. So the matchup today was pretty interesting. It was the Warriors without Steph and then the Timberwolves without, uh, Jimmy Butler. So, um, I was, I wouldn't call it an even matchup because, you know, there's still three all-stars on the Warriors, but the Timberwolves grinded out. They grinded out a six point win. Carl Anthony Towns had 31 points and, uh, 16 rebounds. Jeff Teague had 10 assists. The Timberwolves actually had a pretty balanced attack. Taj Gibson had 11. Neyman Yabayalitsa had 10. Wiggins had 23. Towns had 31. Jeff Teague had 10 points and 10 assists. Um, Taj Gibson also added 13 rebounds. What's interesting to me about the Warriors when they play without Stephen Curry is that even though Kevin Durant, um, you know, some people think that he is in the conversation for being the best player in the world, uh, he had 39 points. Oh, and um, also on this note, last and while I'm talking about the Warriors without Steph Curry, uh, the Warriors also played the Portland Trailblazers on uh, Friday night. Yeah, they lost by 17 points. Yeah, I saw that too. And Durant, Kevin Durant had 40 points, um, 40 points, six assists, six rebounds. He made six threes, and he shot 12 for 21. So he had a pretty fantastic game against Portland. Um, and Clay Thompson added 25 points, and then Draymond Green had a typical Draymond game: seven points, six assists, 12 rebounds. Jeez. Yeah, um, and they still, you know, like the fact that they lost was very, very. Uh, I, I kind of thought that they would be able to at least, you know, compete with the Blazers. I didn't think that it would be a 17-point loss. I know the Blazers are hot right now, um, but basically, the the main thing that I take away from this Warriors and Timberwolves game 
Uh, it's the second game in a row that they've lost without Stephen Curry. And to me, it sort of it screams the importance of Steph Curry um, to the Warriors team. Uh, because it seems like even though Kevin Durant is a, is a fantastic player, um, it sort of tells me that despite the fact that he has all the talent in the world, I think to a degree it tells me that he doesn't exactly elevate talent in the same way that you know a player like maybe LeBron James or James Harden does. Um, because you know James Harden with minimal talent last year won 55 games. And uh, so, yeah, they ended up losing to the Blazers by 17. They lost to the Timberwolves by six. Um, they just don't look like the same team to me because Durant had 40 against uh, Portland and he had 39 against Minnesota and it wasn't enough to get the job done either time. Yeah, and that's a fantastic point about Kevin Durant. Like, if you go back to like the 2015-16 uh, funder, just thinking about the team around that, like it was really Russell Westbrook that was elevating the play of everyone else, and that was uh, a big part of the reason why the ownership felt confident in releasing Kevin Durant and everyone going around now not releasing trade. No, he he did they did let him walk, and like just everyone in the league. Russell's extension, I know what you mean. Yeah, and like everyone in the league is you know, trying to say, oh, Kevin Durant's much better than LeBron James, or oh, Kevin Durant's. Uh, one of the top players in the league. Well, this demonstrates that like a, if you're not even the best player on your team, you're not the best player in the league. And it, it's a good reminder that this isn't the same Warriors team as that uh, uh the 16 uh, 17 no, uh 15 16 team that uh, uh they lost uh, Stephen Curry in the Rockets Warriors series in the playoffs and then they, they did fine against the Blazers Warriors uh, with Klay Thompson leading the show. That this isn't the same team as them. Yeah, I, I completely agree because um, so there's one NBA analyst that I follow um, pretty well. His name is Chris Broussard, and he uh, I, I follow a lot of what he says about you know LeBron and Kevin Durant and Steph Curry and all these things. And the one point that he brings out um, is that Kevin Durant or the Warriors in general as a team, when they do not have Steph Curry, they play a lot like a lot of other NBA teams in the sense that they play a lot of isolation, um, and their best player, which being Kevin Durant, handles the ball a majority of the time. Because I mean, Kevin Durant is. He's not a point forward in the sense of, you know, the way that LeBron James is averaging nine assists, but he, he yeah. does a decent job. You know, he averages about five. He can get you six. And every now and then he can get you a pretty good assist game of like nine or ten. But just in the sense of he, he play, he's because he's a ball handling scorer above all, he does play a lot of isolation because he is, you know, he's an, he's one of the more I would say he's the most difficult player in the NBA to guard. Oh, yeah. Um, if you discount, you know, James Harden's foul drawing ability. But um, <laughs> good point. Kevin Durant, um, it's interesting to me because Steph Curry, I think the thing, the interesting thing about Steph Curry is that every time in the league, uh, you know, there's any time that there has been a shooter of Steph Curry's caliber, well, there hasn't been, but anytime there's been an amazing shooter, like, you know, let's say Kyle Korver can knock shots down from very deep. Even Clay Thompson can knock down deep threes. But the difference with Steph is that because Stephen Curry is able to, you know, dribble past um, anyone playing very, very close to him and because he's able to finish at the rim because he's an elite mid-range shooter, he's an elite free-throw shooter. Um, offensively, I really don't think, uh, you know, aside from athleticism, I don't think that there's that much of a weakness to Steph Curry's game, which makes him sort of the leader. I, I wouldn't say that he's the leader of the team, but he's the leader of their offense. Like, yes. in terms of their, like he's, the lead, he's what makes the Warriors the Warriors. Like, Without Stephen Curry playing the way that he's been playing ever since they went on their first really good run in 2000, uh, the 14-15 season, and even prior to that when they were playing pretty well, he's been the driving force of what makes them the team that they are. Yeah. And I think that you see a lot of cracks in the way that they play um, on offense because they, they, they kind of struggle to produce because when Steph Curry is on the floor, um, they uh, like they like today they only scored 103 points, and then 
in the game against Portland, they only scored 108 points. And then when, you know, when Steph Curry play, and obviously, you know, some of that simply has to do with the fact that Steph Curry is a 26 points per game scorer, but you know, in the Spurs, they, they, they only scored 110 and then, you know, blaze or against the Blazers 108 and then today 103. But, you know, when you see Steph in the lineup, you see more, you see numbers like, you know, 125, 123, 121, that sort of thing. Yeah, and I'm trying to pull up right now uh, how many uh, passes they had exactly, because I know the biggest thing that changed from when uh, Mark Jackson uh, was let go of and then uh, Steve Kerr took over was that the team started passing a lot more, and that's really what Steph Curry is fantastic at beyond his shooting. And his... Yeah, he is. Uh, he, yeah, I think I do. I believe Steph Curry is an underrated passer. Um, one of the knocks that I hear, I hear on Steph Curry is that he's not a pure point guard, which, you know, he's not because of his shooting ability, but I think he'd be hindering himself if he played like a true point guard with his shooting ability. But, um, you know, he still averages seven assists. And I think what people don't talk about enough is that he splits ball handling duties with Kevin Durant and Draymond Green because Draymond Green also averages seven assists and Kevin Durant averages five. So I believe that if Stephen Curry played on this team by himself, you know, maybe without Draymond, he could probably average around nine or ten assists just because, you know, he's a, he's a, he's a good passer. Um, he makes the right pass a lot of times, and he's – He's a he's a very unselfish superstar, which you know I appreciate about his game. Um, but I I think Kevin Durant's rise since he's been on the Warriors, um, I think it has a lot more do to do with Stephen Curry um, than it really does with Kevin Durant because Kevin Durant or offensively at least because defensively obviously Steph doesn't elevate to KD but offensively like this is another statistic that I found out about Kevin Durant. So in his career. He's played, I think, around like somewhere between 70 to 75 games without Stephen Curry and Russell Westbrook. Okay. And in those games, his scoring average drops from about 27 points per game to 23. And his field goal percentage drops from being around like, so like this, I think last season he shot 53.7% from the field and uh, 37.5% from three. When he plays without Stephen Curry and Russell Westbrook, his field goal percentage drops to about 46% and his three-point percentage drops from about 38 to 35 so wow i think that uh, what's a little bit overstated about kevin durant is that um while i do i do believe that he is he's a phenomenal scorer there's no question about it like he's he's a fantastic talent but he's really not that he's not the efficient scorer that all of us you know he's he's not the same like efficient scorer and you know the sense of other like you know like carl anthony towns obviously he's a big man but still you know like lebron is 54 55% from the field 57% when he was in Miami Kevin Durant is an amazing scorer and you know some of that has to do with the fact that he's more of a jump shooter but he's really not he's not uh elitely efficient he's an efficient scorer but he's not a supremely efficient scorer um which I think is an interesting point uh just because of those drop-offs when he's not playing with a point guard who attracts so much attention oh definitely and uh it, it's I think your point on uh, him being the leader of the offense is fantastic because I think there's a lot of parallels between him being out now and like what happened in the 15-16 season when the leader of the defense, uh, Draymond Green, went out. And I'd be very curious to see how it would hold up now with Kevin Durant because I think he might get a lot of he might get overhyped a lot on defense just because of the system that he's playing in. Yeah, that is correct. Um, yeah. Okay. So I think that's it. Oh, oh, yeah. There's and one more thing on the Warriors. Uh, it seems like they were uh, doing a point guard by committee between uh, Sean Livingston and uh, Quinn Cook. I I know of Sean Livingston. He's he's pretty. He's like above average. But how how was Quinn Cook? He's he's okay as a. Uh, I mean, he's he doesn't really produce that much. Um, he he averages maybe I think like 
Last night, I think he had three points, four points. Uh, he's nothing fantastic. Okay. So, yeah, that's, that's about all we've got on the Warriors right there. Uh, let's see. Who else? And one moment, Ryan. I have, to, I have to head down stretch for just like two minutes. Yeah, sure thing. Ryan, you should edit this out. You should edit this out. Okay. What am I going to talk about next? First of all, Oh jeez! <laughs> you you really knocked the door. <laughs> yeah, I'm back. Okay. Uh, we're here. We're, what game do you want to go on to next? Um, let's see. We can discuss. Oh, um. Oh, I had a I had a I had a few more points about Kevin Durant if you didn't mind. Oh yeah 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 okay uh, I'll stick with that then okay five four three two one. But yeah, Kevin Durant is definitely a, fa a fantastic player. He's incredibly interesting, just being like one of the longest players in the league. He's so tall. He's one of the best shooters, despite being seven feet tall or six eleven, if you believe what NBA.com says. Yeah, um, he he's he's one of the. I think he's a generational talent. I truly believe that. What's interesting about having Kevin, a player like Kevin Durant, in the league is that. Um, when Michael Jordan was dominating the league, and even when Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was dominating the league, and you know Magic Johnson, yeah. there was never really like a player who I think was you could compare them to in the same way that we can compare LeBron and Kevin Durant. But I think the the difference between Kevin Durant and LeBron James, like I mentioned earlier, is the fact that the elevating of different teammates, and also I think even though the debate is pretty heavy nowadays about whether or not Kevin Durant is better than LeBron James, while I do believe Kevin Durant is a better pure scorer, yes. he's definitely a better shooter, I think LeBron is able to do something that is very, very uncommon for an individual player to be able to do, and that is slowing down the pace of games. Yeah. Because when you watch teams like the Memphis Grizzlies, when they've been pretty good in the past few years, you know, when they were good, like three years ago and yeah. even, you know, two years ago. Rip Grizzlies. <laughs> the Grizzlies are able to, you know, that when they were the grit and grind team, you know, with Zach Randolph and uh, Mike Conley healthy and Marcus Saul still closer to his prime and all that stuff, they were able to slow down the pace of games to the point where, you know, you could you could make a game about like high 80s and low 90s rather than being like high 120s and low 1-teens. And if you when you notice LeBron James playing, he is able to do 
that as an individual player because even though the Cavaliers since he's been back have they've been you know like a, a jump shooting team and they play fast with a high pace anytime the situation is called for him to play in a game uh, in, a, in, a, in a situation when the other team is just as good if not better than the Cavaliers at doing that he can slow the pace down and sort of bring it back to earth so he can sort of operate in a half court situation which I think we saw in the Christmas Day game this season with uh, the Warriors uh, playing them 92 to 99, and you know there were some controversial foul calls at the end of that game that obviously uh, you know changed the outcome a little bit. But even though even in Game Seven of the 2016 NBA Finals, the final score when they won the championship, the final score was only 89 to 93, and that game was that game was stalemated at 89 for the last five minutes uh, of that game. And then you know in the Boston series. Um, last uh, last season, 2017. Those are some low-scoring games as well. Um, I think in the first game they held Boston to some somewhere like around like 80 points or something. I don't even remember and, to be honest. Yeah, I don't remember that either. But and you know, like the Spurs as a team are able to do that. The Grizzlies as a team are able to do that. But because LeBron James, I, I just I feel like LeBron James is even in his 15th season, being 33 years old, I think he's still more capable of affecting the outcome of a game more than Kevin Durant. I know people love to say that whole thing about how, you know, LeBron can't do this in the fourth quarter. You don't trust LeBron with the ball at the end. Like, I would rather have my ball. I would rather have the ball in Kevin Durant's hands than LeBron at the end of the game because he can make a shot. And LeBron, you're not always sure if he can make a shot. If it's coming down to one, like, individual shot, like, from three, then, yeah, okay, I guess I agree. But in terms of the last few minutes of the game, like, five minutes of a close game, I would rather have LeBron just because he can control the game more than I think Kevin Durant can because, you know, this was evidenced in these past two games against the Timberwolves and the Trailblazers is that especially this Timberwolves game just now, this game was only, you know, the the spread was six points. And at the end of the game, even though Kevin Durant was making shots every trip down, like even though he's capable of taking over a game just in terms of his scoring, he can't really change the way that a game is played in the same sense that LeBron does. And, also, just if you even if you just look at statistically, like Kevin Durant averages twenty six and five assists, and LeBron averages twenty six, close to twenty seven, and nine assists. So you know, and then obviously you can the the defense debate is you know as of right now that's swayed in Kevin Durant's favor, but I think that most people understand that if you've been playing in the NBA for fifteen seasons, um, it's going to be it's not really fair to expect a defensive presence every single night because even in the finals and the playoffs, LeBron does step up his defense to, you know, pretty elite levels. And he's sort of able to recapture what he was doing in Miami when he was an elite defender. Um, You know, I don't think it's fair to expect that from him every single night. And I don't, I don't really understand why everyone is so surprised that Kevin Durant is getting closer to him because Kevin Durant is, 28 or 29 he's in his prime he's only in his i think 10th or 11th season as opposed to being in his 15th yeah. like lebron has been doing this every single day since he was 18 years old and i mean kevin durant obviously he's been doing it you know the past 10 but five more years is is a lot oh impact. yeah so, and like yeah. going going back to what you said last week on like a, I, I think it's a fantastic point that lebron he, he, what he excels at is team defense i i know that's not really shown in his stats this year but just, he's playing with a bunch of god awful defenders let's be honest and yeah. uh, and uh, durant is more of a plug and play defender like you can just put him on any team and he'll be a fantastic individual one so 
like that kind of even. Not, so. not necessarily even because when he was in Oklahoma City, he was not really a, that good a defender. I think it's oh, honestly, good point. I think Draymond Green's presence on the Warriors team has a oh, like yeah. it's sort of. A, and also, this is another thing that's not really talked about. Kevin Durant is seven feet tall. Like, if you look at pictures where he's standing next to Demarcus Cousins and he's standing next to Anthony Davis, like he's taller than them. Like he is. He's a long seven feet too. He's a yeah. He's and he's his wingspan. I think is about seven five. Like I, I don't know. I'm not even sure, but. The fact is that when you play a player of that size at the center, because now the Warriors play Kevin Durant more at the five and four, yeah, um, they move Draymond Green down. So him in a small, like obviously, if you play him at center, then you he's going to be able to block more shots and um, all the stuff about um, some some people love like you know they love to say like things like out of the however many players who have played this many minutes, LeBron James is ranked this in defensive rating. LeBron James is ranked this in plus minus. But people, they, they love to ignore the fact that those stats are based on your team. Yes. Like plus minus is, you know, the point differential when you are on the floor. It has nothing to do like with individual, like it's no, nothing that you can really control individually. And there was a stretch when LeBron James was in, like he, his plus minus was the worst in the league. But, the only reason that that was is because he's playing the most minutes on the worst defensive team. It has nothing to do with him individually. Like, you know, in January, he didn't play well to his standards, but he was still averaging 23, 24 points, seven assists, seven rebounds, which for any other player in the NBA is amazing. And I just think that he's, he's unfairly like, he's still even, even after all that he's done in the league, he's still unfairly criticized in many aspects. I feel like, Oh, definitely. And uh, your point on uh, systems not being accounted for in advanced metrics is a fantastic one. I was going to bring that up later in our advanced metrics uh, discussion, and I'm really curious to see how that goes. But uh, yeah. also around the league, there and there was an awesome game uh, uh, yesterday between the Spurs and Thunder. Oh yes, that was. I thought that was very interesting. I'm very, I'm very, very sad for the Spurs. Yeah. This is the this is the first year um, since 1996-1997 that they've had a losing record on the road. Um, yeah. And uh, it doesn't, I, unless they go 13 and three over their last 16 games, then it does not look like they're going to keep their 20 year streak of uh, winning 50 games alive. Yeah, and I, I, I don't think that's happening. So it's going to be a real shame. I'm just crossing my fingers at this point that they make the playoffs because the Clippers are giving them a real run for their money at the bottom. Yeah, and so I mean, you know, then you also have teams like, uh, you know, Utah is also tied with the Clippers in terms of how many games back they are. Yeah. Um, you also have to worry about slippage from the top coming down, like you know. And also, the thing about the Spurs is that the Spurs have a they have an absolute hellacious schedule going forward. Oh, they yeah. have to play the Rockets two more times. They play the Warriors again. Yeah, and like uh, the winning percentage for the rest of the schedule, it's equivalent to an average number four seed in the playoffs. So that's yeah. horrible. Exactly. Yeah, they they have a hellacious schedule going forward. Um, they play, I think, uh, they play the Timberwolves again. They play the, yeah, like the Warriors, like I said. I mean, they're, they, they play in the Pelicans. They play a few times. The Blazers, they play like they, they, and the Jazz and Bucks. And even the, even the bad teams that they play, like they're not bad teams. Like Ooh, they're still just, they're good teams that just, you know, might not make the playoffs. Like they play Denver and, you know, they, whew, the road for them just might be very, very tough. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure if they'll. I hope I really hope they make the playoffs because the yeah. Spurs at any because especially with Kawhi Leonard, you know he's scheduled to come back this Thursday. Mm-hmm. Um, so with him coming back, I really but honestly, it might it might work to their advantage because you know let's say that they 
actually I'm not really sure if it would or not. If they if they can get up to the sixth seed, I think it would work in their advantage because if they're the sixth seed and they're playing with Kawhi Leonard and they, you know, let's say they match up against Portland or New Orleans, they could still get to the second round. Um, you know. And then I think it could be very, very interesting actually, uh, from this perspective, is that if the San Antonio Spurs they fall to being the seventh seed and they get a first round matchup against the Golden State Warriors. Um, I don't. I'm not really sure if the Spurs would win that series, but I think that they could make it extremely difficult yes. for Golden State. And Golden State has not had a tough first round in a very long time. If they have a tough first round series. Golden State's a two seed. Then they could get their second round matchup. Their second round matchup, or you know, they're still only one game back of the, of Houston. So you know, let's say, you know, like if San Antonio is eight and Golden State is one, or Golden State is two and San Antonio is seven. Let's say Golden State is two. Then they would play the winner of. Uh, three six, and the winner of three six could be Oklahoma City. Um, you know, assuming Oklahoma City <laughs> rounds out the rest of this year, okay. Yeah. Uh, having to play, I mean, even though Oklahoma City, Oklahoma City is a very interesting team because I feel like they just play down to the level of competition. They don't really try on you know the, like the the simpler nights, but you know against the big teams, Oklahoma City does have a winning record against other playoff teams. Yeah, and they're they're a bit like the Steelers from uh, the NFL in that regard. Like they always like their the Steelers were always playing bad against the Browns or like they're playing bad against the Bengals. But every time in the playoffs they come to play, uh, despite what happens. Exactly, happened. I think Oklahoma City is going to be one of those teams that even though you probably wouldn't expect much from them in the playoffs, I feel like they can definitely give you a tough run. Um, so honestly, like if the playoffs started today and it was Portland Oklahoma City, I would still give Oklahoma City the edge just based on talent and the fact that. Um, I feel like Russell Westbrook, Carmelo Anthony, and Paul George for that. I feel like all of them would just be motivated because of, you know, the things that have happened to them in terms of their playoff success uh, in recent years. Like Carmelo Anthony, I, I don't think he's played in a playoff since 2013. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, Paul George. And uh, Carmelo Anthony is one of those players who, like, even though he's past his prime, he's still one of those players who's very capable of of going off for one game. He can probably give you maybe like a, like a high 20s or maybe even a low 30s game for one game in a series. Uh, Paul George obviously capable of that as well. Russell Westbrook is constantly doing that. Yeah. So if you know if Golden State's if Golden State's road to to the finals ends up being San Antonio, Oklahoma City, and then Houston, which is possible if San Antonio gets a low seed, I think it's going to be very interesting to see how they play in the finals because uh, the one year that they had a tough time getting out of the West in 2016 was the only year that they lost. So. Yeah, and no, that's a fantastic point, and uh, the I, I would be curious to see how much uh, Russell Westbrook would really like Carmelo Anthony go off. I don't know how much he has this season, but it seems like he's he's very uh, dominating with the ball, and I know he was when uh, Kevin Durant was around. But the Western Conference playoff picture has been fascinating so far this season. I was listening to uh, the lab, and apparently the three through ten seeds, the fact that they were they're all four and a half, actually four games uh, separated, you know, like in terms of uh, games back for. At this point in the season, that has literally never happened in NBA history. So. Yeah, four games separating three through uh, three through ten, which is honestly that to me that's ridiculous because it it eliminates the entire, in my opinion, it eliminates the entire factor of resting yes. the playoffs for the you know because typically, like this is also I think the first, like this is I think one of the first years that uh, the East has clinched a playoff spot before a team in the West because. Oh, hmm. um, Toronto and Boston have already clinched, and uh, yeah, yeah, that would make sense because the West is just beating itself up, and I'm I'm gonna be really sad for whoever's the nine through ten seed because they've all really deserved it this year. But 
One of, one of the reasons the lab gave for uh, why the free for 10 seeds are so bunched up is uh, they thought it was because of all the injuries to the contenders, and that's made all of the teams really regress to, uh, to like a lower winning uh, potential. Yeah. Mm. But uh, the only team that I really feel like doesn't deserve the playoffs at this point is the Clippers, just because they traded away Blake Griffin. It seemed like that was a tanking move, and I don't, I don't want a situation like in the MLB where the Twins uh, basically traded away their closer and one of their best starting pitchers, and then they still made the wild card game. So yeah, that's just how I feel about the playoff picture. I can't imagine who's going to fall off. Either the Jazz, Nuggets, uh, Spurs, Heck, Thunder, Timberwolves, really any of them. But uh, the playoff matchups are looking fascinating right now. We've got Rockets, uh, Clippers, uh, Spurs, Warriors, uh, Trailblazers, Thunder, Timberwolves, Pelicans. Uh, which series would you be most excited for if it stayed as it is? The series that I would be most excited for if the playoffs started today would have to be New Orleans, Minnesota. Because... New Orleans, I would love to see Anthony Davis and Carl Anthony Towns because go go against each other because I think two I think those two players are the future of the Western Conference. Um, uh, just in terms of the direction that it's heading, because I feel like there's a little bit of a revival of uh, big men in the NBA. Yeah, uh, just because of, you know you got Joel Embiid, you've got Carl Anthony Towns, you've got Anthony Davis, Demarcus Cousins. He's a little bit older, but still. Um, and then Laurie Markkinen is an amazing underrated player. Oh, I forgot about him. Um, Chris Porzingis, forgot about him. He tore his ACL, but. Poor guy. Uh, he is, but, you know, there are a lot of a lot of really good uh, young big men, and then you know we've got DeAndre Aiden coming up in this draft. Uh, I just think that that series would be a little bit of a, a little bit of a tease for the future, and also I just feel like it would be a little bit more favorable for Anthony Davis to finally win a playoff game against a team like Minnesota, if unless you know, because if he had to play a team like like let's say that if if New Orleans in the next few games slips and they end up being a seven or eight seed. I feel like they would probably get swept by Houston and Golden State. Yeah. And I would continue the, the, you know, the, the haters of Anthony Davis love to say like, Oh, he's never won a playoff game. He's been in the league for like five, six years now or whatever. That's the worst point I've ever heard. Yeah. It's been like, <laughs> such yeah. a bad team. Skip Bayless, the one and only, he said, Anthony Davis, he just has empty calorie numbers because he's never won a playoff game. as though any player in NBA history has been able. Well, well, unless you're LeBron James. LeBron is probably the only player who's won a playoff game with a supporting cast as bad or worse than that. Mm. Um, and uh, I don't know. I, I just feel like because the other series I feel like would be relatively predictable. Because Houston and Houston and the uh, the Clippers, you know, if they started today, I feel like everyone's pretty confident. That was the only reason that would be interesting is because of the whole Houston Los Angeles uh, drama with Chris Paul going into the locker room and that kind of thing. Um, and then Golden State San Antonio, I feel like uh, you know we've seen it a couple times. It would be a good series. I just don't think it would be as exciting. Uh, Portland and Oklahoma City, that would also be interesting. But uh, just just because of, I feel like every other matchup is guard centric. Because you know Houston, you would have uh, you would have like Harden and Paul going against like Lou Williams and Milos Teodosic. Golden State and San Antonio, it, that would actually be small forward centric. It'd be Kawhi and Kevin Durant. But uh, Portland OKC would be like Dame and CJ against, you know, Paul George and uh, Russell Westbrook. But New Orleans and Minnesota would be interesting, in my opinion, because the best player on both teams, well, depending on how you view Jimmy Butler, but either the first or second best player on the team would be big men. Um, and I think that would just be something that we haven't seen in the playoffs in a while. Yeah, and that's a good point about the construction of almost every team in the league right now. Like, they're all based around uh, point guards and uh, shooting guards. And, uh, yeah, it was really only the Pelicans and... Uh, who else? Like the maybe Timberwolves. Uh, 
Spurs, and like that. That's pretty much it for like teams that are really based around big men. Like that, it's all just guard centric right now, and I think that's uh, something that a lot of uh, front offices are uh, realizing that they can exploit. Yeah, I, I think uh, the the one thing is that, like, just going off of your point about how big men are sort of, you know, Ben Simmons, despite the fact that Ben Simmons is technically a point guard, I feel like Ben, I feel like Joel Embiid is at at this point in time. I feel like he's a little bit better of a player, just because he's able to dominate, like in terms of, because he can shoot a little bit from the outside. So I, I, as of right, I'm not. I don't think Joel. I think in the long, long term, I feel like Ben Simmons will end up being a better player because Ben Simmons is able to play point guard. And he's able to have such mismatches at his position because he's so tall and he's so strong. But as of right now, I would just I would prefer Joel Embiid. So you got Philadelphia that's around Embiid. You've got the Knicks who are around Porzingis. You've got Denver who's around Jokic. You've got New Orleans that's around AD. And then you've got San Antonio who's around uh, Lamarcus. And then you have Minnesota who's around Carl uh, Anthony Towns. So yeah, as of right now, you only have about like five or six teams, and then a few of those teams don't even matter because Denver might not make the playoffs, and we know New York's not going to make the playoffs. So yeah. it is very interesting. Uh, I think what would really benefit uh, some of the um, a team that really is uh, like the thing about Philadelphia, like if LeBron James is to go there, and um, then you really like you're you're sort of dabbling in this whole thing about how you have a really good big man and a really good guard and Ben Simmons and you have a really good wing in LeBron James I don't think there's a single team in the league that has a very good big man a very good point guard and a very good wing um and for that I really don't even feel like there's that many teams that have a very good point guard and a very good big yeah because yeah. <laughs> like all the te- all the best point guards don't play with very good big men like Damian Lillard doesn't Russell Westbrook doesn't I guess Kyrie Irving Al Horford would be the closest thing to it but Al Horford I don't think is He's only averaging 13 points and like six rebounds at this point in his career. So yeah, and like a lot of the really good teams right now in the West, like the Rockets and Warriors, that they either aren't true big men or like they aren't true guards. Like that Clint Capella, he's basically just you toss it to him, he'll put it in the bucket. And then the Warriors, I don't think anyone would call Draymond Green or or uh, Kevin Durant like a prototypical center. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, I, I think that's a lot on the West. Uh, did you say you watched any games in the East? I would love to talk about Toronto. Oh, yeah, they, absolutely. They are really, really impressing me. Honestly, I know everybody says that the knock on Toronto is that they never show up in the playoffs or the postseason. But I'm not sure what it is. But for some reason this year, I feel like it's just a little bit different. Because when Toronto was winning, you know, those 50, like this 50, went, they're on pace to win 60 games, which I think is phenomenal. Yeah. Like the fact that they they sort of did like a like a Spurs thing. Like, they kept all the same players in their starting lineup. They added a few good bench players, and they just changed their system to be free-flowing. And they have seen such... Like, they've seen such an increase in their production because of it. They're the only team in the league other than Golden State that's top five in offense and defense, which I think is a phenomenal metric of how good that they've been on both sides of the ball. And to me, like, just the, when you watch them play, they just look as though that they can actually beat you in the sense of the way that the other team can beat you as well because Toronto in my opinion in the past few years out of the top teams in the league like you know they've been around like Cleveland Boston Golden State Houston San Antonio the the one thing about Toronto that was different than those other teams is that Toronto was extremely isolation heavy in terms of like if DeMar DeRozan or Kyle Lowry were not in the game like to, to play well like if they had a bad game 
if both of them had a bad game, you were done. Like there was no chance. But now that they put so much more faith in players like Sergi Baca, Jonas Valanciunas, Fred Van Vliet, uh, Pascal Siakam, CJ Miles, uh, they've really rounded out into being a really deep team that actually, uh, you know, they know how to play like winning basketball now. They're a better three-point shooting team this year. They're a better defensive team. Uh, they're they're playing at a faster pace. Uh, I just think that the year all around feels a little bit different for Toronto because, I mean, the fact that they snapped Houston's 17-game win streak I thought was a really big test for them because Houston obviously was coming in hot. And they, you know, they, they played them to a close game. James Harden had 40 points and they only won by three, but they were able to grind it out and win, which I think is a very good sign for, uh, for them. Yeah, definitely. Uh, how much do you feel like they'd be able to use their bench in the playoffs? Because I know that's one of their really strong points. I don't know. I know that uh, a lot of lineups get thinned in the playoffs, but I feel like Toronto is probably, they're probably going to be one of the deeper playoff teams. Um, they're probably, if I were to say, if we just, if I were just to, you know, going off the top of my head, who, who I would play off the bench for them, I would definitely play CJ Miles, Fred Van Vliet. Um, uh, I think Pascal Siakam is on the bench. So I would probably play, probably play those three. And then I think, um, um, there's one player that I, that's not coming to me, Norman Powell. Um, I would probably play those four off the bench, but I would still probably leave 38 minutes, 39 minutes for DeRozan, Lowry, Ibaka. Yeah, I would think you would have to. Uh, who, who do you think would be the worst matchup for that team? Like someone Toronto? like <laughs> Interestingly enough to me, because we were just speaking about them, I feel like this, the Philadelphia 76ers would be a Yeah, I was going to say. Because Kyle Lowry is good, but he's six foot, he's six foot one. And he would have to. He would. He would be playing matchup. He'd be matched up with Ben Simmons, which would be hellacious. <laughs> and then you have Jonas Valanciunas, who I think never really grew to the way that people thought he would in the league against Joel Embiid. Um, and then on the wings, like DeRozan is good, but he in the Eastern Conference he has a little bit of a benefit of not having played against the best defenders, and he would be playing a full series matched up with Robert Covington and Ben Simmons guarding him. Yeah, it'd be brutal. Um, which would be brutal for, and especially because he can't shoot three, um, it would be a horrible like. I just feel like it would just be a clunky series for him to have to go inside and guard against those tall, long players. Um, however, favorable matchup, I really feel like the Raptors could. Uh, I honestly, I feel like the Raptors are a pretty good matchup like to go against Cleveland because if you take it like other than LeBron, like the Raptors can match up with any other player on that team because, um, oh well. I'm saying because like Kevin Love will be back, but Kevin Love I don't feel like is good enough to take over a series. Yeah. So Sergi Baca on him. Sergi Baca is still a pretty good defender, even though he's dwindled a little bit. He can probably do some damage against Kevin Love. Um, so I just I think that Toronto just the fact that their guard play would destroy Cleveland's guard play I think would is going to be very interesting um, if those two teams meet. And even the Celtics, you have one guard on Boston, and since Gordon Hayward is not coming back, I feel like Toronto could dispose of Boston in probably a six-game series. Yeah, I think so, too. I mean, like Even if they were matched up against someone like the Bucks, like we saw him with that one last year, and I, I'm not confident that this is a better Bucks team this year. Yeah, it's not. Uh, that, that's been one of the more disappointing spots of this season to me, because people are people keep saying things like, or not, not that many people, but there are a few people out there who believe that Giannis Antetokounmpo is going to be the next best player in the league, and I mean, while I do see his talent and I do see all these things that people are saying about him, he sort of has that same problem that we were mentioning earlier with Kevin Durant, where despite how talented and good he is, he just doesn't seem to elevate teammates. Yeah. Um, 
which is weird to me because I know he's a, you know, Jason Kidd played him a point guard a little bit back when he was a coach. But still, uh, I, I think Toronto this year is, I think they're a much, I, I feel like the only team in the East that could really beat Toronto is, I think the Sixers could beat them and I think the Caps could beat them. But otherwise, I think Toronto really is, um, I, I really think, I feel like if Cleveland was not, if Cleveland did not have, if Cleveland didn't make the moves at the trade deadline, I think Toronto would be a clear favorite to win the East. Yeah, I think so as well. Uh, do you think the Pistons have any chance of getting back into the picture, or are they just done? I would have to call them out for the season. I I don't know what it is. They just don't seem to play motivated. They don't seem to really care that the Blake Griffin is gone. And at this point in the season, I think they're only about, on average, like 16 to 17, 18 games left in the season. And Detroit... The, the difference between the East and the West this year is that the like the three through ten is close in the East. I mean, three through ten is close in the West, but in the East, it's only close from four to eight. And yeah. after eight, the next closest team, which is Detroit, is five games back. So it looks like the playoff teams in the West in the Eastern Conference are set. So right now, it goes Toronto, Boston, Cleveland, Indiana, Washington, Philadelphia, Miami, Milwaukee, and I feel like that's actually. I mean, like the only team I think that people thought would make the playoffs that maybe didn't. I feel like maybe some people doubted. Because uh, I think when, when New York still had Chris Depps Porzingis, they were playing they were playing about 500 basketball. So some people thought that they might be able to make it into the playoffs uh, and maybe take out the, a team like Miami, who still doesn't really have a, a really, really good player. Yeah, unless uh, Dwayne Reed wants to take over the playoffs again. Yeah, like the one year in 2016, that was, that was phenomenal to watch. But... Right now, I think it's interesting. The The playoff matches in the East would be Toronto-Milwaukee, like we just said, Boston-Miami, Cleveland-Philadelphia, Indiana-Washington. Um, I think it'll probably end up changing a little bit because, uh, well, Indiana is only a half game back of Cleveland, um, and then Philadelphia is only a game and a half back of Washington. Washington is only half a game behind Indiana. Miami is only half a game behind Philadelphia, and Milwaukee is only half a game behind Miami. So... Um, the, I think the teams that are in the Eastern Conference are all going to make, like the, the current playoff teams in the East, I think are set. I just think that the order will change up a bit. Um, I think Milwaukee probably will come up to seven and then Miami will probably fall to eight. I think Philadelphia will probably stay at six. I think, yeah, and I think Washington will probably move up to four. Um, yeah. So that will probably be uh, the one uh, – the four or five matchup will be the same, but it'll just be in a reverse order. And Indiana will have home, or Washington will have home court advantage um, because John Wall still coming back. So, yeah, I know that that uh, one of my more controversial points on that initial podcast was that the Wizards would fall off. Uh, why do you think they've been able to hold up so well without uh, John Wall? I I honestly think that it's because I know a lot of people accredit it to uh, Bradley Beal's good play, which. I think obviously it's a part of it, but I, I really feel like the one thing about point guards in the NBA is that just because you get a lot of assists doesn't mean that you're a good facilitator of the basketball. It means you're a good assist man, but it doesn't really mean that you're that you're like it, it doesn't mean that you benefit ball movement because there are some point guards in the league, and I think Rajon Rondo was one of the first players to get you know really scrutinized for this. Is that they pass to assist rather than to pass to pass. Yeah. Like they don't pass to initiate ball movement. Like they pass in order to um, 
like they pass just to get the ball like for an assist like they don't pass to start a chain of ball movement which i think the one thing that has made the spurs so successful is you know ever since that you know ever since they've been good is that the spurs have never really had one player who is responsible for a majority of the assists like they always have a really good balance like since 2016 i don't think any player on the spurs has averaged over three assists and it's because they have they have eight players averaging two or more which ends up you know facilitating a lot more ball movement because I think a player like John Wall, despite his talent, uh, even his own teammate, Marcin Gortat called him out and said, we're playing such good team basketball since they've been gone. And I think it's because you have less ego on the team now that John Wall is there. So they're moving the ball a lot more And this. I think their offense is just so much more fluid. And I think that's the reason that they've been able to sustain a high level of play, even without him. Yeah. Uh, and that's a good point about passing to assists. I mean, if you look at some of Ron- Rondo's games where he gets like a two points and then 25 assists, you can tell that he's just holding the ball, waiting for an opportunity to get a basket. Yeah, and I think that's also been a criticism of Chris Paul, where Chris Paul would just continually dribble the ball and look for an assist. Obviously, that's changed this season now that he's played with James Harden. But in the past, I, I you know, I wouldn't say I agree with the criticism because Chris Paul, I think, is, he's one of my favorite players in the league. But he, he could have been guilty of that, uh, you know, a few seasons. Yeah, definitely. So I think that's the East playoff picture, and then that's the West playoff picture. Uh, has there been any interesting news in the past week? Uh, let's see. Derek Rose ripped his haters. <laughs> <laughs> that was, he Good said that he him. does not need their validation and that he doesn't care whether they say he can't play, can't shoot. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wait, I'm see- is everything right with uh, Iguodala? Andre Iguodala, I don't know what his deal is, but he for some reason he hasn't played. I haven't seen him on the court in a while. Hmm, that's interesting. Uh, looks like Anthony Davis is recovering pretty well from his injury. Uh, James Harden should be fine with his. Uh, yeah, it's uh, pretty much it for uh, news around the league. So, uh, do you want to switch to uh, some uh, talking points? Sure. Okay, so uh, something that I was hearing in the in the lab, which is uh, basically just my way of getting a rundown and like all the stuff that's happened in the past week of. The NBA, uh, it's put out by uh, 538.com. Uh, and one of the interesting things was I was hearing about uh, Gary Harris, the guard for the uh, Denver Nuggets. And apparently, uh, in his first four seasons, his uh, stat line is almost identical to that of uh, Kawhi Leonard's first four seasons. They're literally within a tenth of a point on points, rebounds, assists, and blocks for every one of their first four seasons. So that's pretty incredible. I think that's very interesting, and I was watching, uh, I told you I was watching that uh, Cleveland game against um, the Nuggets, and one of the commentators mentioned that um, that he that he could be the next Kawhi Leonard. I think Gary Harris will end up being a very good two-way player, but the only thing that I would, you know, I don't think he'll be Kawhi Leonard simply because he's a shooting guard that's 6'4", as opposed to being a small forward that's 6'7", because... I mean, let's face it, even though Kawhi Leonard is a fantastic defender, he's obviously helped by the fact that he's 6'7 with a a very strong frame. Um, I think Gary Harris is one of the more underrated young players in the league, and I think um, this is an interesting point as well about the Denver Nuggets as a team in general, is that they, um, last season, um, after the All-Star, after the Nuggets traded Yusuf Nurkic to the Portland Trailblazers, and they made Nikola Jokic their full-time starter, this was in December of... uh, December of 2016, 
after that trade and after moving Jokic to the starting lineup permanently, the Denver Nuggets were the number one offensive team ahead of both Houston and Golden State last year. Yeah. And that is something that I don't think enough people talk about. And when I was reading, I was reading something that I thought was very interesting about the Denver Nuggets, which, which is which was that uh, Denver's rebuild, um, you know, since getting rid of Carmelo Anthony is all that. They have been the team who has constructed their new team in the mo- in the in the way that's most similar to Golden State. In that they, Ooh. rather than tanking and getting an extremely high draft pick, they have always played marginally well, and then but they've walked out. Really good draft picks, you know, in the later rounds, and then get you know later lottery draft picks. Because if you look at it, like Nikola Jokic is their second round draft pick, which resembles what happened with Draymond Green. Yeah, you know, Gary Harris was their nineteenth uh, pick in twenty fourteen, which you know resembles uh, what they did with uh, Clay Thompson. And then you know you have the the uh, seventh pick in Jamal Murray, which resembles what they got with Stephen Curry. And you know, I don't, I'm not saying Jamal Murray is going to be Steph Curry, but just in the way that Denver has constructed their team, I read some people, and because they are such an offensive juggernaut already, I would not be surprised if Denver did something similar to Golden State, which is just bringing in a new coach, and then they just completely rise through the roof and end up being a team that's like Golden State because offensively they can play just as well as Golden State. And I'm not, I'm not saying that to exaggerate, but like they really can like just in terms of the numbers they put up in the shooting that they have if they were a good defensive team denver would be a terrifying force in the western conference yeah and i'd be i'd be very curious to see like the actual data on this i know we couldn't just say subjectively but if uh, teams that just are always getting the number one overall picks every year and like they're getting like the average return on that if they they are more commonly nba champions versus teams that have like the warrior style where you lock out on a second round pick, you lock out on a bunch of mid range picks. Because like you know, like a, the tanking model obviously is predicated on the former being true, but I'd say it's probably about half and half. I honestly, just if you look at recently, I feel like it's been more like you know the latter, like we were just talking about, because the Spurs obviously have always been doing that, uh, where they just kind of get late. And you know, well, Tim Duncan, I guess that they're sort of cheating because they kind of did both. Yeah. They did the Tim Duncan thing, and then they also did, like, the Monty Ginobili, Tony Parker thing. But, um, you know, a team like Golden State has done that recently. Uh, the last champion that wasn't Golden State or Cleveland was San Antonio. Before that, it was Miami. We haven't seen um, – and then, obviously, there are some teams that built through trade. The yeah, last for team free agency. we saw that wasn't, um, like, the – it was the 2004 Pistons because every team since then has either been a super team or a team that had a very high draft pick and traded for another star. Yeah, the Pistons are such an aberration in general. Like they didn't even have a, an uh, All NBA first team member. Yeah, and they didn't have like I think Chauncey Billups is their best player, averaging like twenty points, five assists, something like that. Like, um, yeah, outside of Ben Walls. Yeah, that was uh, he wasn't even drafted. Oh, one on the right. I'm getting a call. Yeah, I wonder who he's getting a call from. I'll have to ask. Who Just was it? Funny. Just my mother. Ah, okay. Um, yeah, but the the Pistons were an aberration. But I don't know. I, I I'm watching out for Denver. I honestly I don't think it would be a bad idea for people to get some Denver Nuggets gear before uh, before they get really good. Because when Nikola Jokic comes around, and I really feel like they're going to be scary. Yeah, no kidding. And like it, it, it's really weird. I was I was going back and looking through the market the market share for like all all of the NBA teams, and even still this year the Nuggets are one of the lowest and. I think that's absolutely ridiculous. I think they've actually declined from last year, which I 
couldn't understand at all. So, yeah, if we can get some more fans for the Nuggets, that would help out a lot. And also, I think it has to do a lot with the fact that when Golden State was doing this, um, they were still making the playoffs because the West wasn't as good. Like, they were getting in as, like, a sixth seed, winning the same amount of games that Denver is now. But because the West has gotten so much better with the top teams being so top-heavy and winning so many games that, um, you know, it's been it's been difficult for them to make an impact. I think if they got into the playoffs as a low seed, people would see it a little bit more. But that seems like it might not even happen this year. So, Yeah. And uh, one other point on uh, Gary Harris and the Nuggets. Apparently the Gary Harris to Nikola Jokic and the Nikola Jokic to Gary Harris uh, combination it's literally the most efficient scoring duo in the league, and they have the same effective field goal percentage as Clint Capella's. So that's, that's ridiculous. Yeah, that's nuts. I, I think it's like 61% or something, which is just out, out, just out of this world. Uh, do, yeah. you, do you think a Gary Harris or Drew Holiday is going to have a better career? Honestly, by this point, because Drew Holiday has been, I think he's been in the league since 2010 or 2011, right? Yeah. I think I would I would have to give it to, I would have to give it to Gary Harris just because he seems like he has more to do. I mean, just Drew Holiday is he's been one of the more underappreciated talents in the league. Um, but at the end of the day, he uh, yeah, you he know just, what you're getting. He doesn't seem to have, he can't stay healthy. Like it's just very unfortunate. Uh, since he's been in New Orleans, he's first season he was in New Orleans, he played 34 games, and the next season he played 40. The next season he played 65, but he only started 23. And then last season he played 67. Um, like he he really has been like ever since he's been traded to New Orleans from Philadelphia, like he's really had some trouble. Uh, he was an All Star in 2013 in Philadelphia. He averaged 18 points, eight assists, four rebounds. Um, but I mean, the, the the positive side about Drew Holiday is that he is becoming a better shooter. Um, you know, in recent or actually, he's been about the same throughout his whole career. He's a 36 percent three point shooter. Last season, he, he had averaged 15 points a game, seven assists, four rebounds on 45% shooting. I'm not sure what his averages are this year, but Drew Holiday, the, they, the thing with him is that I just feel like it's too late in his career to say that he's going to end up having a really nice one because he's already 27 years old. Yeah. And now, like, 28 this June. And I do wonder if, like, there's anything that those uh, really, really bad, te- not really bad teams, well, I was going to say that, but sorry, it was because I was trying to hunt down this uh, live stream and I accidentally uh, popped on the 76ers and Nets game. Uh, <laughs> now, with those uh, players that have really bad injury rates, like, is it, if there's anything that they can even do, because, like, even today when, like, we're investing so much money in uh, medical research and trying to find every way to keep players healthy. It seems, still seems like uh, players like Anthony Davis and like just these really injured players, there's just nothing they can do. And, you know, what's interesting to me about it is, like, even a player like Stephen Curry, like, his injury history I don't think is talked about enough because it seems like every year, Steph Curry always seems to have some issue with his ankles. Like, he like this season he's already missed 17 games, and that is not – that like, it, it doesn't seem like it because the Warriors have been so good, but 17 games is a huge sample size, like – I mean, they're not huge, but it's like if any other team was missing their first or second best player for 17 games, like the Warriors are the only team with the luxury to not struggle like that. Yeah, definitely. Because even Houston struggled when James Harden was gone and when Chris Paul was gone. Like when both of them were gone, they I don't think they won a game if both of them had been gone. Yeah. and I want, they're, I they're like 33-3, and three, so. You know, I don't want to be the guy to say this, but I'm kind of expecting Embiid to get hurt in one of these years. Uh, yeah, uh, he, that's that's one of my main worries, and that's one of the things that 
I, I heard uh, the guy that I mentioned earlier, Chris Broussard, I heard him say this as well, and he said the decision for LeBron's free agency will come down to whether he, what he trusts more. Does he trust Chris Paul's health more, or does he, or Chris Paul's age, or Joel Embiid's health? Like, it comes down to what, like, does he think that Chris Paul will really deteriorate with age like every other point guard has? Um, or does he think that um, Joel Embiid was able to stay healthy? Because Joel Embiid, just seven-footers with leg issues, like, they have never historically had a good time in the NBA. Like, got Yao Ming, and then, uh, obviously, uh, Greg Oden, and the list for that goes on and on. Yeah, and... I'm so worried. I'm so so worried about Demarcus Cousins' Achilles. I really hope that that oh, doesn't yeah. hinder the rest of his career. And, it, and with the big the big thing with it, as I mentioned in our All Star special, is just there's only been one center in the entire league's history that's come back from him. That's Dominique Wilkins, and he was a lot younger than Demarcus Cousins is right now. And there's like 13 others that have been way worse when they came back. <clears throat> Oh gosh, I I really hope he's good. I, I was so excited for the Pelicans, and hey, thank God they've been able to keep it up. But I don't know how much longer it's going to last. Anthony Davis has been overworld, uh, overworldly right now. And also, just Anthony Davis and just him putting this much pressure on himself to do all these sorts of things is part of the reason why he's obviously had some lingering injuries show up. Like he had that rib issue, he had the ankle issue just recently, and you know. Thankfully for them, that thankfully for the Pelicans, they've been small. But I really think that at this point they should consider playing him less minutes, just because I feel like it's it's much more important to preserve his health until Demarcus Cousins comes back next season, uh, rather than trying to force a playoff push to lose in the first round this season. Yeah, definitely. Uh, but Demarcus Cousins is a free agent. That's something that people haven't really explored. But he really seems to enjoy his time in New Orleans. I honestly, I genuinely, genuinely, genuinely hope that he resigns with New Orleans, and then 100%. New Orleans can go out and acquire a quality guard to pair with them. Because if they get, a, if New Orleans gets a quality guard like someone who's better than Rajon Rondo and Drew Holiday, they would be extremely, extremely dangerous. Oh, that's not good. Did you hear that? What up? Oh no! I was just getting a vast warning saying a threat has been detected. Okay, I'm getting I'm getting off this website. Okay, okay, we're just gonna roll with the net 76ers. I don't want to get a virus. Okay. Uh, so I I think that's about all we have on that. Uh, do you want to move on to uh, some of like a uh, uh, play not playoff projections? Uh, just playoff outlooks and like uh, what why our favorite teams are the favorite teams that they are. Sure. Um, okay, so I, I know that your favorite team right now is the 76ers. Uh, why, why is that? Um, they're my favorite. They're my favorite, my team that I root for is the Timberwolves, but the team that I'm supporting, like the team that I look out for in the East is the 76ers. The reason for the Sixers, I think, is that it it's just we have not seen a combination like Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid in a very long time. To have a point guard that's so tall and so versatile and to have a center, like I think Joel Embiid, like, I truly think that just because simply because of the way that he plays on both sides of the ball, I think he's the best center in the NBA um, now that DeMarcus Cousins is out. And that's that's if you don't count Anthony Davis as a center. If you count Anthony Davis as a if, if you count Anthony Davis as a center, then I think it's Anthony Davis. But if you don't, then I think it's Joel Embiid because even though I have a lot of love for Carl Anthony Towns, you know him being on my team and everything, he I just, just doesn't have as much potential. Is, he's not the player on the defensive side of the ball. Um, you know, just in terms of block shots, I know his his advanced metrics are very good, but I think a lot of that has to do with uh, him benefiting from the fact that Jimmy Butler has been there all year to help. Hundred percent. 
Yeah, and um, just individually, I don't think Carl Anthony Towns is the defender that Joel Embiid is. Um, so simply because I think, you know, after LeBron is done, I feel like Ben Simmons has a chance to be one of, if not the best player at the league because he will be the most unique player in the league um, because he'll be the only seven-foot point guard. He'll be the only point guard that can go out there and grab like 10 rebounds a game and get close to averaging a triple-double, um, you know, unless you're Skip Bayless because Skip Bayless believes Longo Ball will average a triple-double. Um, you know, I'm I'm so glad that I stopped listening to uh, Skip and Shannon. I, I I listened to that podcast for like six months, and I I always hated it. But I felt like I needed to listen to it just to have uh, you know, like some kind of uh, feed for like what's going on in sports. And I I, I I'm so glad I'm not listening to it anymore. It's like the it's so simple to see what they're doing. Like they're just trying to both be polarized, take the most extreme uh, versions of each side so that someone's going to, so it's going to force like a conflict and even, you know, like the most simple things are just going to do that. And like, yeah, Yeah, it's not like a legitimate debate involving like actual, like, you know, because like, if you think about it, like some like Shannon Sharp will say one thing that Skip Bayless could, or no, other way around. Skip Bayless easily says something that Shannon Sharp could so easily refute. Oh, wow. Sorry. MB just had a great block. Oh yeah, Joel Embiid. But yeah, oh yeah, you know we're talking about Embiid, so this fits perfectly. Uh, he, I, I just because of their combination, that is why I think they're the most intriguing thing in the um, in the East because they're also surrounded by players who are three and D guys like Dario Saric, Robert Covington. Um, I think in Philadelphia, and you know they have JJ Redick as well. He's not much of a three and D; he's more of a, just a three. But yeah. he. He can obviously shoot the ball. Um, they have, uh, I don't know, I just think Philadelphia, they're, they're intriguing simply because of their their uniqueness, and they're also one of the bigger teams. And the one thing that I've heard a lot about LeBron potentially going there is that if LeBron were to go there, their front line of Simmons, LeBron, and Bede would be unstoppable and unguardable. Yeah, pretty much. And I really wish uh, more people would talk about the value of reach in the NBA because, like, uh, the 76ers, not only uh, being one of the biggest teams, they're also one of the longest teams, uh, with the exception of Reddick, who perpetually is, like, the smallest reach in the NBA. He's 6'3", but he has, like, a 6-foot reach, and that's why it, they always try and get him to play point guard or something instead of uh, shooting guard. But I, I feel like that's never talked about enough with... Yeah, I, that's never talked enough about uh, when you're talking about uh, centers. Because like, if you look at players like Draymond Green and Taj Gibson, they're really good because uh, because of really what they can do for uh, uh, just what. What am I trying to say? So uh, if you look at Draymond Green, he's a six eight tall. I'm sorry. What did you say? Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, what is going on here? Oh, hang on a second. Yeah, do you have your sound on? All right, yeah, I think you had your sound on. Yeah, I, for some reason I couldn't hear you. Sorry about that. Okay, yeah, so I, I, I was just saying, did you hear the part about J.J. Redick? Yeah, my, J.J. Redick is just more of a three-point shooting guy. He's not really a, not really a defensive guy, but still, that, that that's the main reason why I find Philadelphia so interesting. Yeah, and yeah, J.J. Redick just has the Sammy Haynes problem with uh, basketball having short arms. But, yeah, that's just... <laughs> love Sammy Haynes. Yeah, poor guy. Listening. Shout out to him, love Sammy Haynes. Yeah, but like it, it's so important. Ooh, it's sweet. We got a Masai Ujiri uh, commercial. Good for him. Now, we've uh, it, one of the biggest problems with uh, it, how we look at centers is we always uh, just say, ooh, is he seven foot two? Is he seven feet tall? 
but nobody talks about how long their arms are. And if you look at players like a Taj Gibson or Draymond Green, I think Taj Gibson has like a seven foot uh, two reach. Uh, Draymond, I just checked yet, like a seven one. That's why they're able to play center. And like even if they're short, it doesn't matter because they could just stick their arms up in the air and have the same length as some of these uh, other centers. And I, yeah. I really wish they would. I really wish they would just classify players based on their reach instead of their height. I mean, height doesn't matter. You're not trying to hit the guy over your head. I, uh, height, I think, because even in terms of rebounding, like, Taj Gibson has always been a really good rebounder. So is Draymond Green. Um, this, the most, and, like, even Kevin Durant is not a physical player at all, but because he's so long. Yeah, he's 75. Grab, he's, yeah, he's, he's able to grab seven to eight rebounds a game. If Kevin Durant had some meat on him and really wanted to play center, he could, he could be pretty deadly. Oh, yeah. um, but you know, I, I agree with that testament. Like Draymond Green is one of the best defenders because of his reach. Um, Kawhi Leonard also. I'm not sure how long LeBron James' wingspan is, but I feel like if it is long, uh, I think that there's a unique option in Cleveland of playing him at center um, when uh, when they're not playing with Nance or Love in the lineup. Yeah, here let me uh, see real quick. Uh, LeBron. Uh, this is just going back to his draft. Uh, six, seven and a half. Uh, a wingspan of uh, seven feet. So yeah, a good five inches. That's pretty impressive. Yeah, you know that. I mean, even and that was that was a long time. I'm not sure if his arms have grown in the past fifteen years, but still. Yeah, and uh, here I'm curious to see now what Darko Milicic is. is. Oh, he actually had a pretty good wingspan too. Uh, seven five. Yeah. He, he, that was just a that was a weird thing about that was I love to call it Dirk syndrome because I feel like a lot of teams have made the mistake of drafting European big men because they thought they would be like Dirk. Yeah, they missed the point. No. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I I asked you why hey, the Timberwolves and the 76ers were your uh, favorite teams. So I thought I would get into uh, why I have the favorite teams today too because I I feel like a lot of people don't understand why. Uh, why, like, I have my favorite teams. So what I prioritize in, like, the teams that I like is I want to root for the... My primary goal in sports is to root for every team to get at least one championship. Like, that's my biggest thing, because I feel like you have to get that to that point before you can really start looking at all the other teams, because I... That's terrible for, like, one team to have never won the whole uh, shebang. Like, even if you're talking about, like, a team like the Kings, well, you won in the 50s. You have a trophy. So, so that's basically how I feel about it. But I took the liberty this week of uh, making a giant spreadsheet because I was sick of uh, having like arbitrary uh, uh, ways of uh, determining this. So I created for the NBA. I created the criteria uh, criteria one NBA Finals series wins, then uh, criteria two NBA Finals appearances, uh, then uh, the special case three point one ABA Finals series wins because I thought that was an important factor that a lot of people don't look at, and then a uh, special factor, uh, 3.2 uh, ABA Finals appearances, followed by... Well, no, I'll, I'll see what you think so far. Uh, do you think this is a valid way of looking at it? Are you evaluating in terms of which franchises have been best historically? Yes, and then uh, going basically in reverse order, looking at which ones have been the worst, and then saying, I want to support those. Oh, okay, I see what you're saying. Yeah, um, that, I think if, if you're... Cause I guess the, I, I heard someone say this. I'm not sure who it was, but they said that in, in a in a perfect world, like that, like every team would win a championship every 30 years because there's 30 teams in the league. Yeah, and you know that would be like 
it's interesting that what like you know what things like dynasties have done and i think it's just i think all of it honestly goes back to the very beginning of basketball when you had the celtics winning everything and then shortly after the lakers because like the reason that i mean like the lakers and celtics obviously have so many fans and they're the two largest fan bases in the league probably aside from i'm not sure where new york ranks but um those teams having won 17 and 18 or 16 and seven, however many championships they won respectively i don't really think that that um like that is that does go to show how great their franchises are just because they've always been able to win like across decades um i think if san antonio had been in the league for a longer period of time we might be able to see that with them as well um a little bit more because i know a lot of their success has been attributed to greg popovich uh, in the past 20 years but I think if you're looking at it in terms of teams to root for, just based on their misfortune and stuff, yeah, that is a pretty good way to look at it because you've got teams like Phoenix who have been very close in the past but have never gotten there. Then you have teams like Toronto who are still relatively new um, and they haven't gotten there. So, And then Minnesota also, I don't think they've ever played in an NBA Finals. Um, Orlando has played in one Finals. They've never won a championship. So it does give you a pretty good sense of, you know, which the underdogs, I guess. Yeah. And just to uh, give an idea to the listeners of what this uh, practice looks like in action, uh, just going based on if the season ended today, how the playoffs would shake out in my ideal world. Uh, you have Raptors, Bucks. I'd go for the Raptors. Uh, Celtics. Oh, wait, this is what I would expect to happen. Yeah, I'd uh, Raptors over the Bucks. Celt- uh, Celtics losing to the Heat. Uh, Cavs losing to the 76ers. Which is interesting, because everyone forgets that the 76ers had uh, great teams in the 70s and the 60s, but yeah, they won a bunch of championships, and then the Pacers over the Wizards, then just uh, the Raptors over the Heat, Pacers over the Cavs, Raptors over the Pacers, and then for the Western Conference, I just had uh, Clippers over the Rockets, uh, Thunder over the Warriors, Timberwolves over Trailblazers, uh, Pelicans over the Spurs. Then it went to uh, Pelicans over the Clippers, Timberwolves over the Thunder, and then Pelicans over the Timberwolves, with the Pelicans winning in the finals. Now, obviously, that isn't what I actually think would happen by any means, but I, I think it's interesting how the Raptors really stay safe throughout it, because like, you could see them in the finals this year. Yeah, that is interesting, because they are one of those teams now, all of a sudden, who their history sort of seems to be behind them um, in terms of how bad of a franchise that they were. Um because I think really for the for like, I feel like prior to this n- new iteration of the Raptors, the Raptors are known for a couple things. The Raptors are known for having Vince Carter in the dunk contest, and they were known for having Kobe from Canada points on them. Like those are the two points that that was those are the two things that made the Raptors the Raptors. But in recent years, I think they've done a pretty good job of sort of wiping their history and making them because you know Toronto has only been a team for I think since two thousand one, since the NBA expansion into Canada. So this is their 17th year in the league, and I feel like, you know, who knows, maybe 50 years from now, when you look back, it, like, they might be seen as a winning franchise because of, you know, similarly to, you know, like, let's say just out of the blue, they're able to win the championship. Or no, I guess it wouldn't be out of the blue, but let's say that they, even though the deck is stacked against them, if they won the championship this year, and then they go on every year, and they have a pretty good, you know, system and culture in place, and then they bring in new stars as DeRozan and Lowry Age, they could be seen as a as one of the better franchises when uh, when looking back. Yeah, definitely. And I think 90% of the credit has to go to uh, Samaya Ruggieri. He, he's been one of the best GMs in the league for like the past five years, aside from R.C. Buford. And I, I'm really surprised that more teams aren't trying to poach him from the Raptors. Honestly, I feel like 
people, I feel like teams don't care about it enough. I, I wish, I feel like there should be a lot more interest in who the general manager of your team is because like you see Cleveland and when Cleveland had David Griffin, they were able to like, they, they were on it. Like if they saw a star they liked, like there was a pretty good chance that they could get them just because of David Griffin. Yeah. But now with Colby Allman, like they, they had trouble. Like, I mean, the fact that they didn't bring, like, I know that they brought a bunch of role players who put together probably equal the impact of one star, but still like on like the, the, the craziest thing to me is that Dan, Dan Gilbert, I think he's the worst owner in basketball. Yes. Well, well, well no, no, no. Uh, what's his name? Uh, Brandon Dievek with the Nets? Kings. No, Kings. Uh, Purple oh, Yachts. Yeah, yeah. uh, okay, let's remove the Kings and Nets from the equation because the Kings and Nets the are Nets are and the, and the Nets GA owner is doing a good job now. He did horrible like five years ago. Yeah, yeah. When, the, when he made that Celtics trade, that was the worst thing ever. But Dan Gilbert, he's, I think he's one of, one of the worst owners in the league. And he was sort of saved from himself i guess by having david griffin but like it really showed to me because if you if you uh if you look back at like some of the headlines from mid like the, the off season of 2017 david griffin said that he was elbow deep into a trade to acquire jimmy butler and to have jimmy butler on cleveland with lebron that like, would have been unbelievable like that would have been like that might have put him above the warriors yeah i, I agree because even though Jimmy Butler on a, on a talent perspective probably isn't the player that Kevin Durant is, Jimmy Butler is a true two-way player. Like, he really is. Like, he's, like, uh, not as rich man's Kawhi Leonard. <laughs> like, he really is. Um, and to have, a, you know, to have, like, a, I guess, a tier two Kawhi Leonard with LeBron and then you keep Kevin Love, like, that that to me is a team. And um, I don't know what that trade package included um, to the Bulls, but... I doubt that it would have included Kevin Love because it probably it was probably Kyrie Irving like one for one. Yeah, and, and even that would have been worth it. I mean, uh, I, I this has been an unpopular opinion, but I think Jimmy Butler is as good as Kyrie Irving at offense, and he's miles ahead of ahead of him on defense. Yeah, offensively, I think it just comes down to uh, Butler's ability to actually play through like. Like Kyrie can play through contact just because he can finish very well, but just in terms of the amount of damage that they can, like Kyrie Irving is a little bit more fragile than Jimmy Butler is, basically, is what I mean. Yeah, which we say after Jimmy Butler uh, did whatever he did to his meniscus, but that that's an aberration. Yeah, he tore his meniscus, but that's more Thibodeau than it is Butler. Yeah, it doesn't seem like he's learned his lesson either. I, I just saw in that uh, uh, Timberwolves Warriors game, like uh, Carl Anthony Towns playing uh, 39 minutes, Tosh Gibson 40 minutes. <laughs> So. Honestly, the, the, the world should be happy that Joel Embiid doesn't play for Tom Thibodeau because if that was the case, Joel Embiid's career would already be over. Yes. <laughs> but, yeah, I think, uh, like, I'm not sure what it Yeah, but Dan Gilbert just, I mean, gen, like, general managers, basically, I, I, because Dave Griffin was able to almost do that, like, that, that really speaks volumes to me about how important... Um, you know how how important having a good general manager is because honestly, I really feel like it's only a matter of time because before Masai Ujiri does something to acquire a really good star, like. Well, I mean, uh, somebody, if you remember, he he got the Kyle Lowry from the Knicks, so like even that was a fantastic trade. Yeah, and um, he I think he's also obviously heavily involved in drafting. Like he got them to get C.J. Miles, and you know he he's oh well C.J. Miles in trade and then drafting Demar Derozan, uh, but. Or I'm not sure how long he's been the general manager, but still. Yeah, I think I think it's been like five years, but 
he's he's drafted well for his position basically like as well like since he's been there like he's drafted well like in terms of pascal siakam he's done a good job and like um in terms of uh is it og anunobi uh yeah yeah like you know things like that like he, they, he's done a pretty good job and uh, at some point in time um toronto I, I really feel like they're probably gonna acquire a pretty good free agent um, and I, I feel like this would be the, or not this, maybe not this summer, but in the 2019 offseason, I think they should, they should really uh, in, like look into it. Because, I mean, let's say that DeMarcus Cousins goes to the Pelicans. I mean, not the Pelicans. Let's say DeMarcus Cousins goes to the Raptors. Like, that's a team. Like, that's, they could be the favorite in the East um, if they had a player like that. So, Oh, crap. His name is Masai Ushiri. I, I kept calling him Samaya. <laughs> oh, Samaya. Yeah, Masai. Whoops. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, no, that's not great. But yeah, yeah, he's been amazing, and it, it, it's such a Knicks move to ha- have him originally been a Knicks executive, and then he gets uh, you know, basically thrown out. The Knicks are the worst. Phil Jackson was a joke. Yeah, and on your point about worst uh, owners in the league, I think James Dolan is actually worse than Ranadivek, because at least Ranadivek is doing a great job with like the arena and everything. Yeah, and I mean, even so, this year, like you know, their culture changed a little bit, getting Zach Randolph and Vince Carter to come play there however they pulled that off but um, if i was either of those players and i was like winding down and michael i don't know why you would want to play for the kings so that, the pitch there might have had to have been like perfect yeah yeah i i mean maybe it was just like hey you want to live in california truly because the clippers lakers and warriors probably won't have you yeah but uh, would you rather have like a uh, a great coach in the NBA or like a great GM? That is a very interesting question. Um, if it came down to it, I would probably have to say a great general manager because I feel like to a degree, even when you have a good coach, um, obviously more of what happens in the game is predicated on the player. Um, and because of that, if you have a general manager who's able to bring in more talent, even if your coach isn't that good, you can probably still win a lot of games just based on having talent. Because I mean, I'm one of the, I'm like, some people think that I'm a hater because of this, but I genuinely feel like Steve Kerr, like I, while he's a good coach, I don't think that he really was the coach of the year because the year that they won two, uh, the year they won 73 games, Luke Walden is the one that coached them the 39 and four. So it sort of shows me, and like he let, he let them coach themselves even, which, which sort of shows me like the expendability of a player like him. I think Steve Kerr did a lot in order to change, like like you said earlier, like he made it a pass-happy offense. But I really feel like other than just saying pass the ball more, be more free shooting, and letting Steph Curry have the ultimate green light, I really don't feel like he expanded off that much of what Mark Jackson did because he, he himself credited and said Mark Jackson made them a defensive-minded team. Like that had nothing to do with me. Um, so I do think coaches are a little bit more expendable than general managers because general managers allow you to have the talent that you have Whereas coaches can, you know, even if they're really good coaches, if you have a lot of talent, it can sort of not really matter. Yeah, and I think the Raptors uh, are the perfect example of why the general manager is all that matters because I think most people would say Dwayne Casey is a below-average coach in the NBA. Like, I I, I know some people that would uh, personally take uh, someone like uh, Doc Rivers over uh, Dwayne Casey just because you know, he's not adding that much to the team. Dwayne Casey is is weird because now he's in. I agree with you in the sense that Dwayne Casey isn't that good of a coach because he he really should have been able to do a lot. Like 
this year is an aberration, I think, for him because yeah, he's he's being brought up in coach of the year discussion because he made a smart decision. But in terms of his history, like reason, like he's really done the Raptors in just in terms of how like he he was horrible with lineups in the playoffs. Like when DeRozan and Lowry was off, were off in the play, like he refused to take them. Like he just kept playing them, and it's just like oh, it'll come around. Like they'll they'll get hot. Like it'll happen. Like I guess to a degree, yeah, you should have faith in your players, but at the same time, like. <laughs> yeah, you gotta make it. Um, you gotta make adjustments. Like yeah, yeah, you you have like he's one of the worst. He's one of the worst coaches in the league in terms of making adjustments. <clears throat> yeah, and the def- one thing about um, Teron Lu that I like is that Teron Lu uh, in the well, he hasn't done it recently, but in the 2016 finals, he did make really good adjustments. Um, Steve Kerr, he's also one of those players. Like, Steve Kerr, though, like I don't really feel like he makes adjustments. I just feel like he because the Warriors have that whole thing about strength and numbers. Like he he just kind of plugs and shoves and sees who like. Like, oh, like, let's put you and give you some minutes. If it works out well, then okay, there you go. I look like a good coach now. Yeah, and, like, the the biggest thing of Steve Kerr is just he doesn't make mistakes. Yeah, but, like, the, the interesting thing about Steve Kerr is that, like, when the Warriors decide to turn the ball over and play sloppy, like, they lose. Like, it's like, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, they're, they're one of the more, like, even, they get a lot of praise, but and they rightfully so, but they are one of the more uh, turnover-prone teams in the NBA. Um like you see some games where they'll have like 27 turnovers and then they'll still win because like 27 <laughs> that's a lot yeah, like, like they'll, they'll have a lot like they'll have like 24 25 turnovers and um they'll, they'll still win because i mean they're they're the warriors yeah hey, but uh, for me like all that matters is assist to turnovers like if you're getting if your passes are overshadowing how you're uh, doing turnovers i i don't really care yeah. if you're turning that, it that, that is why they they're so successful because even when they have high turnover games they just they have more assists always. So. Yeah, and that's why they uh, still lead the league in it because they're still a great team. Yeah, I, I just I just feel like if you like the one thing to me that really kind of sort of spelled out to me that their coaching wasn't really that important was because Luke Walton, like he 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 straight up coached them to thirty nine and four. Yeah, which is a better record than what Steve Kerr did when Steve Kerr had them like for his stretch of that season. Yeah, how how do you think Luke Wal- Walton's been doing as a coach on the Lakers? Oh, yeah. This is interesting because we were just talking about the Nuggets. He got into a screaming match with Jamal Murray on the sideline. Oh, wow. Uh, he, he he started, like, swearing at him and, like, saying, like, F you and, like, that kind of thing. And he said that Jamal Murray is a disrespectful player. Um, he's a very he's a very emotional coach. I think it's because he's young and he's not that far removed from being a player. So he still gets into it. I, I think he's done a pretty good job with what he's had. Um, he, I think, is really good at making adjustments in-game. And he's also... Uh, like he's not afraid to try new things either. Like he played Brandon Ingram, Brandon Ingram at point guard for a little while, and he flourished. Uh, you know, he's he's very willing to like let Julius Randle go out there and play. Um, he's willing to try new things, and I think he's doing a really good job as a young coach. I feel like he's going to be one of the best coaches in the league in a couple of years. Yeah, definitely. Uh, do you think uh, Terry Stotts is finally going to get the NBA Coach of the Year award that he's been deserving for like three years straight now? Yeah. If Terry Stotts, I love Terry Stotts as well. I know you and I were very heavy on this in uh, the one year that they uh, they were the fourth seed. But, yeah, when Steve Kerr won it. Yeah, yeah, and um, I and that we I know we were really heavy on that because um, uh, that was the that was the first year after they got rid of their four starters, and that was the year CJ McCollum won Most Improved Player and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, though, no, I do not think so. Aww. I feel like it probably end up going to Dwayne Casey or Brad Stevens. Um, even though it shouldn't. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I would take Brad Stevens as a coach over Terry Stotts, but, I mean, just working with what he has. 
No, I mean, this this season, yes, Brad Stevens would deserve it over Terry Stoss, but I, I feel like it, it wouldn't be that long of a shot if uh, if Portland is able to maintain the three seed, um, and maybe if they can gain some separation from the teams below them, then yes, I do believe he should be in consideration, but in terms of, I, I feel like Brad Stevens will, Brad Stevens or Dwayne Casey will probably end up winning it this season, or maybe even Mike D'Antoni. Yeah, didn't Mike D'Antoni just win it last year? Oh, yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah. I feel like there's a lot of voter fatigue with that. They don't do that. Coach of the years don't win back-to-back. Yeah, I'll look up uh, when the last time that happened was. But Yeah. It's Popovich only has two. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like that's the problem with uh, a lot of these awards. It's just that you're expected to be as good as you have been. Yeah, it's like, it's sort of like, it's weird because like, um, like even if you're consistently great, like it's just like they don't, they they don't people. I I feel like the NBA awards don't reward consistency. Yeah, which is a little bit annoying. Uh, okay, so do you want to uh, get into uh, advanced metrics or uh, what was the other thing or this? Uh, oh wait, that was the really difficult question. Um, before we do that, actually, do you mind if I ask you a question? Oh, absolutely. I love getting questions from people. Nobody ever is confident enough to ask a question. Uh, so I, here's, just because we were just on the topic of NBA awards, this is something that's piqued my interest for the past couple of years. Do you think that rather than having a most improved player award only, do you think that it would be better served to have a most improved player award and then have a sophomore of the sophomore of the year award? Because one thing that I've heard of, like some players say, like on the TNT broadcast and stuff, is that it's not really right to award most improved player to a second year player because a second year player is supposed to improve. So, like, do you think that it would be? A little, I think it would be interesting, personally, like to have an aspect of having second year player of the year or sophomore of the year um, award because then, like, yeah, I think that would be interesting as well because then when you have situations like Ben Simmons, Blake Griffin, Joel Embiid. Um, and they missed their first. They missed their rookie season. They could, rather than competing for the rookie of the year award, they could compete for the sophomore of the year award. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I see what you mean. Uh, on that point about Ben Simmons and uh, Joel Embiid, I think they're fine for the rookie of the year. I get, I get the point that like you have to integrate into the league and all, but it, it's so telling to just be playing against uh, the actual NBA competition. I think that's much more of a factor than just dealing with uh, NBA travel or not being in college yeah. anymore. But on the point about a sophomore of the year award, I I don't think that's necessary, to be honest. I think what they need to do is just, for the most improved player award, just make it so that you have to either be in your third year or your fourth year at the time that it's happening. Because I, I, I agree. Like, if, oh, yeah. if you're just... Yeah, it's the same point, yeah. Yeah, because like, if you're just a crappy rookie and then like you get good as a sophomore, that's not most improved. That's just, you know, you got used to the NBA. Yeah, exactly. The, yeah, that that was my main point. I guess you wouldn't. I guess you wouldn't have to create a new award for it. But like, off your point about three third years, uh, third year players and fourth year players. Like, you know, I think last year was probably like last year and the year before, for that matter, were both pretty genuine. Like to have Giannis win it, I think was right, and to have CJ McCollum win it, you know, that was that was right. But I mean, oftentimes when people are talking about the discussion, they just always have these second year players who just got a little bit better. So. Yeah, and like if you look at it, something like this year, you see the perfect example of what the most improved player award should be going to as someone like Victor Oladipo in his uh, fourth year now, where he in the first three years he wasn't that good. He's given his own opportunity on his own team, and he's really stepped up his game. So you think he should be the most improved player this year? 
I can't think of anyone else that deserves it. And just, just to close that uh, Coach of the Year thing, literally nobody has ever won it two years in a row going back to 62. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I agree. Victor Oladipo, yeah, he is a, he's a very good example of what the award should be. That, that is true. Yeah. I mean, who, who's even, like, in second place right now in a lot of people's balance? Let's see. I'm trying to think. I feel like some people have mentioned um, – I think it was – it was a, I think it was a lottery team. I feel like he was a player on. Um, I'm trying to think of his name. Yeah. Uh, D'Angelo Russell. Maybe, maybe it was D'Angelo Russell. Maybe I feel like it might have been a um, a player on Denver. Oh. Uh, it might have been Gary Harris, but I'm not sure. No, I don't. I, I don't think they would do Gary Harris. I don't know. The point is that Victor Oladipo seems like the runaway pick right now. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. I think, oh, that is a really bad train. <laughs> it looked like she killed somebody in that. <laughs> oh my god. Okay. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. Okay, this is, this is going to be interesting. So do you want to start with the really difficult question that I promise you is really difficult, or the uh, just general discussion to preamble it? We can start with the difficult question. Okay, this is going to be difficult. So, uh, just some background on this difficult question. So, every time I think about advanced metrics, this question uh, pops up into my head, and I've literally spent cumulative hours trying to wrestle with this, and I've never been able to resolve the question. And I think it's just because there's so many facets to it, and like it really encompasses all of the arguments around what advanced metrics are supposed to be, and just getting over traditional metrics. So, basically, what it devolves into, and this is how I summarized it, when evaluating player performance, I, I hope you're taking notes, for the, yeah. for the purpose of determining award winners, should we value the results of a player's play or the expected results of a player's play more? So just to, it, it, just to give you an example, so uh, let's say we have player A who is identical to player B in every way, a completely unrealistic uh, scenario, but you know, and uh, yeah, bo sure. both of the two finalists for the MVP award, except player A averages 33 points per game with an expected uh, 30 points per game, let's say, based on uh, the kinds of shot he's, shots he's taken or like the defenses he's specifically playing against. And uh, player B averaged uh, 30 points per game with an expected 33 points per game. So what do you, what do you think? Well, that is very interesting. Um... I'm immediately thinking, just just based on the whole player A, player B thing, um, just 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 based on the numbers you gave me, 33 and 30. I'm thinking of James Harden, Russell Westbrook from last year. Yeah. Uh, like a similar situation to that. So, in terms of the award in general, like you know MVP, I feel like the MVP award is named incorrectly anyway. Um, but just based on the whole thing with advanced metrics, I feel like. I don't think that you should award – I personally don't believe that it's right to award a player simply because of something that you expected from them, only because expectations can always be thrown around. Because, you know, we were just talking about most improved player award. Like, that award is basically only because, like, sometimes players completely exceed expectations, such as Victor Oladipo. Like, nobody saw this coming with Victor Oladipo. And because of that, he's going to be rewarded for something. But in terms of MVP, like, I feel like it only comes down to what you actually do because 
me personally, like I was one of the few that I, or maybe not one of the few, but I genuinely believe that James Harden should have won the MVP over Russell Westbrook. That was my thought too. Like I, like I under, like of course it's amazing that you averaged a triple double, but at the end of the day, like, <laughs> like he he shot forty two percent from the field. Yeah. He shot thirty three or thirty four percent from three. And, you know, statistically, like, 32 points, like, he averaged 31.6 points per game, 10.7 rebounds, and 10.4 assists. So, obviously, it's amazing. But, like, I feel like when people just simply watch their games, like, people could obviously see see that, like, there were instances where Russell Westbrook would actually, like, take rebounds from his teammates because he really wanted to get a triple-double. And, like, you know, there were some games where, like, he, he would play, like, just a little bit. And, like, he, even in games when he, like, had bad games, like, he would he would really, like, try and get a couple stats and, like, you know, like I remember there was a game when he played like I think 16 minutes and he still had like six points, nine rebounds, nine assists and stuff like that. So like like I personally believe only because like when I think of that situation, I think of the James Harden, Russell Westbrook yeah. thing. I think that it should be based on what is I don't think it should be based on what's expected. I think it's based on what's done because like a player himself cannot help what other people expected from him to do before a season starts like. Like in your situation, like if player B. Well, here let me, let me just stop you right there because I, I I keep hearing this. What I mean by expected isn't it, it, literally what I mean is like that you finish your game and then we go back through that game and we say okay based on what you did in this exact game how should have you have gotten in like the points totals your rebounds and your assists. I don't mean like before the season, so I just want to clarify that. Oh, if you mean game by game, I I would still probably say the same thing in terms yeah. of like like. Because at the end of the day, most like because when looking back on things, people only really look at your production. And if you ended up producing more and you did stuff like, because like I understand what you're saying about the advanced metrics and everything, but at the same time, I feel like MVP awards should be a lot more. I feel like one of the most because of the award is called most valuable player. I feel like it should more than anything. I think that it should account to how much you elevate your team's play. And I don't mean that in terms of like you have to get a lot of assists, but just in terms of things like how much better is your team when you're on the court versus off the court? Like how much better is your team's point differential? How much team, how much better is your uh, team's defensive rating? How much better is your team's offensive rating? Which is why I personally believe that to have a player like, like I don't think that Russell Westbrook should have won that year because at the end of the day, even though he like, you know, you can make an argument about whose supporting cast you thought was better between James Harden's and Russell Westbrook's. But at the end of the day, let's face it, both were pretty subpar if you were to take those two players off their team. And with that, James Harden was able to lead that team to being probably the second best offensive team in the league and winning 55 games. And the only thing that really changed about him was that he was playing point guard instead of shooting guard, which I think did more than anything showed his versatility. And, you know, he was last season, he had a game where he had 53 points, 16 rebounds and 17 assists. And, you know, while Russell Westbrook obviously had mind blowing numbers as well, it was, to me, it just, James Harden's numbers last year to me felt more genuine because you could see how much better his team was playing when he was playing versus Russell Westbrook's team just seemed like they were just waiting for him to like, just do like, it wasn't really like Russell Westbrook was playing team basketball. It was just, he was playing basketball with the team around him. Whereas James Harden was being good by making his team a lot better. Yeah. And, and like, I, personally, I disagree on the premise that uh, their supporting cast were the same, but that's not really the point. But I, I think more so than that, the Russell Westbrook, uh, James Harden uh, point, 
it brings up a, a not not an even more difficult one. It's a slightly easier one, but the argument of uh, what role usage should play in evaluating a player. Because if you look at someone like Russell Westbrook, he was able to average a triple double because he also broke the record for single season usage. And like, if you should penalize a player for doing that, or if you should uh, raise him up, and most people they just say, okay, we should look at efficiency and usage in tandem. And obviously, that's why uh, we thought that James Harden was more valuable, but even still, it becomes a very difficult conversation. But yeah, on your point about uh, raising your team up, then I, I, I'm i curious to see what you would think about another example I had, which was uh, Kawhi Leonard from last year, if you're evaluating him for Defensive Player of the Year award, because if, if you remember uh, his uh, on, on-off-court on uh, thing for defense, I, I believe he was like, he made his uh, defense like 0.2 uh, points per game better or, like, even worse than that, and, like, that would be compared to someone like Draymond Green, where it was, like, 10 points per game better. Mm-hmm. But, see, the thing is, the thing about that is that, like, it's a tricky situation, and you were right, this is a tough question, because Draymond Green also, he benefits from the fact that he plays on a team that is coached so, like, and I'm not going to say that Popovich's team aren't coached as well defensively, but in terms of the athleticism and the ability for the players on the Warriors to move, I feel like because the Warriors' defense looks so cohesive and because Draymond Green was the best defender on the most cohesive defense, it made sense to give him the Defensive Player of the Year award because a, a little, like, something that I like to do is, like, I like to put, like, let's, like, could this player have done this in this situation? Like, oftentimes when I compare LeBron and Kevin Durant and, like, the back of my mind tells me, ah, oh, maybe Kevin Durant may be a little bit better, I think, like, oh, but Kevin Durant would never be able to win, like, he would never be able to do what LeBron is doing with this team that's really not that good um, and, like, that kind of thing. So I think that if you had put Kawhi Leonard on a defensive team that was just as good as the Warriors, his numbers probably would have been better because I think – I don't think that's debatable that Draymond Green is more of a – like, he's a really good help defender, but one-on-one he really can't hold that many people because, like, he, he comes from weak side for mostly all of his really good defensive plays rather than locking someone up one-on-one, which is why I personally think that with Kawhi Leonard, you know, he, I think he – I think he should have been the defensive player of the year last year as well. But in terms of just like, and you know, to a degree, you can, like, if you were to avoid advanced metrics at all, I know a lot of people are big on the eye test. And I feel like to some Get degree, it is pretty important. Like, how, how well, like, does your team play better or do, like, Whoa. do they play better? You, sorry, yeah, I'm just going to stop you right there. Did you see that replay? Oh, yeah, I did at the dive. Yeah, I uh, know, like, right before that oh, of, like, him getting pushed back when, like, the ball was, like, literally on the rim. Yeah, yeah, that that should have been a goal. Yeah. All right, sorry about that. No, but yeah, no problem. Yeah, and um, um, I I feel like just like the thing is with um James Harden, I feel like last like you could easily tell last year that when he was on the court with his team, his team was playing so much better. Like the increase in his team's ability to be good when he was on the floor was a lot better than James Harden. I mean, than Russell Westbrook's because like. Some people can say, like, I know Victor Oladipo's situation is, like, weird to think of. Like, he's obviously a good player, and it really feels like, to me, like, Russell Westbrook was hindering him from, you know, being the sidekick that he could have been last year. And, um, you know, it's just for those reasons, I don't think players like, in situations like Russell Westbrook should have won the MVP last year because, like, the thing with Russell Westbrook is that I feel like it's important to evaluate, like, how good a player is like, is this the year that they are actually the most valuable player in the league? Or is it just, like, something where 
this some anom- anomaly happened and like you just feel like you're forced to give it to them because like the thing with James Harden I feel like was that in 2015 he also should have been the MVP over Stephen yeah. Curry's first year and uh, you know the players even voted for James Harden to win the MVP he was the Players Association MVP yeah and I and think I like, we definitely have regrets now because he, now he's kind of gotten screwed two years in a row yeah 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 well not that, in a row but that kind of thing is wrong like he like I, I feel like it should be just be more basic. I don't think that there should be as much of a bias in terms of like just having crazy stats. I guess you know, like I wish that it was a little bit more like it used to be, where like Steve Nash was able to win two despite Kobe Bryant having better statistics. Um, like I feel like that was fair because Steve Nash was clearly elevating his team. Like he was the reason that those Phoenix Suns teams were so good, whereas Kobe Bryant was losing in the first round with his Lakers team. Like I just feel like having a six seed like I, I feel like the first thing first and foremost should be like I, I think that if your team is not at least if, if your team does not have home court advantage in the playoffs then I think that you should be eliminated from MVP discussion personally because like <laughs> the best players in the league even if like like that's why Anthony Davis I think is a legitimate discussion this year is because he might actually end up being um, home court advantage in the playoffs but like if your play is not able to elevate your team to being one of the top eight teams in the league, then, I mean, how can you say that you're the most valuable player in the league? So I think first and foremost, the first criteria should be whether or not you have home court advantage in your conference. And then from there, you should figure out who the best players are on each team. And that way you could get eight candidates. And then among those eight candidates, you could just look at things like, okay, like who is the best statistically, who is the best, like, and then, after you get through the stats, like if one of those player stats is just clearly so much better than the other ones, and obviously you can give it to them. And then if they're kind of close, like you were saying, then you can look at things like, okay, how well did their team play when they were both on the court? How well did their team play off the court? But at the same time, you can also, I think it's also okay for you to factor in how good is their team? Because like, if you're looking at like, let's say like the, the player that's on the first team in the West like, let's say, you know, you're looking at James Harden versus the fourth team in the East. This will be like, you know, let's say LeBron was fourth and LeBron was doing that. Like, you know, like, let's just change the situation a little bit. Like, I feel like in that situation, you should give it to, like, if, okay, like, let's say the top two candidates are Kevin Durant and LeBron, right? Because Kevin Durant is first in the West and Kevin Durant's stats are similar to LeBron's. And then LeBron is fourth in the East. and his, But, like, I feel like in that case, it should be LeBron because LeBron obviously his team would be much worse and he was able to elevate them to being so much better. So therefore he is more valuable. So he should be the most valuable player. Yeah, it's a good point. And like, that's it. That's why uh, players like Russell Westbrook can even get a consideration being on like such bad teams where they where like, even if they weren't uh, one of the top four seeds, they, they can raise their team to a point where they're even close to that. But I, I think it is a good point that like you should have to be like one of the top four seeds in your conference to even be looked at because even looking like at players like Russell Westbrook, you do the kinds of things he was able to do because you just take away all the possessions from your teammates. And I, I think that has a lot to do with why you haven't seen a lot of development from any anyone else on the funder aside from just the free agents that they brought in. But, and I mean, even Stephen Adams' development, I think, has been stunted by the fact that Russell Westbrook takes his rebounds. <laughs> yeah, good point. Like it's, it's gotten to the point where like, this, this is, I think, extremely interesting. Stephen Adams is averaging nine rebounds per game, but he's only averaging three point eight defensive rebounds. 
like he he's resorted to getting most of the majority of his rebounds from the offensive side of the ball because Russell Westbrook is you know obviously it's easier for him to get defensive rebounds than it is for him to get offensive rebounds. Yeah, definitely. And uh, I, I was just looking back through a list of the MVP uh, awards and the seeds of the teams that they were on. Thank God for uh, Kiwara for this. Uh, the last time even a number three seed got it was uh, 1999 with Carl Malone. That's obviously with the strikes shortened season. Yeah, and then, and then, and then like in 1988 with Michael Jordan, but literally every other year it's been a first seed or a second team seed. Obviously, Russell Westbrook being the uh, aberration there, but he shouldn't have won it in our books. Yep, I really don't think he should have. I mean, well, Houston was the third seed last year, so that I guess also would have been a little bit of a, of a you know, of a weird thing. But still, I mean, I just feel like it should be top four seeds in the con. I just, I feel like advanced metrics can't, I think they can play a factor um, simply because of, like, but not too much of a factor because a player who's on a better team will have better advanced metrics. And because they're oh, wow. on a better team. Are you seeing that stat for the Nets? Which one? Uh, the most uh, games with uh, 24 plus assists. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah, that's pretty incredible. Uh, just to recap what we're seeing right now, apparently the Nets have uh, 13 consecutive games with 24 plus assists and teams. Ahead of them there are the 1995 Magic, the 92 Pacers, uh, twice apparently, and then the 90 Cavs with 17 compared to the Nets 13. So that's incredible. That is they pass. That, oh, yeah. I don't know. I kind of hope that they keep playing poorly, though, so that, that uh, the yeah, Cleveland, no kidding. Pick, Cleveland pick can be pretty high. Yeah. But as far as advanced metrics in terms of voting, uh, I just feel like I don't think that too much should be put into them because if you play on a better team, then your advanced metrics are going to be a lot better. Um, unless, I mean, I'm not really sure what value over replacement means, but just in terms of what the stat itself is called value over replacement, I, I assume it means like, you know, like what is your value rather than like if you were replaced, like LeBron James, I think is one of the best value over replacement players ever, which I think makes, that makes a lot of sense because he's one of the most valuable players, but you know, I think I think I don't think in terms of like plus minus and like defensive box plus minus and like you know offensive rating and like all all that kind of all that sort of stuff I don't think should be factored into it too much because like you could be a player like LeBron James who's going to have a bad defensive box plus minus because you play on such a bad defensive team which doesn't really have that much to do with you personally being an individually poor defender it just has to do with the fact that your team is getting outscored so much when you're on the floor because no one else around you is playing good defense. Yeah, definitely, uh, and that uh, transitions nicely into uh, the conversation I was going to uh, go to uh, next. Uh, so, like, there are free big NBA advanced uh, metrics that people really use, and these are like the all-encompassing ones. Then those are uh, win shares, and obviously, it's derivatives win shares per forty-eight minutes, and uh, it's other ones that don't exist, but I'll just pretend they do. Uh, box score plus minus, which has it does have a lot of derivatives. You got uh, the ones that betters use, like RAPM or whatever it is. Then there's real plus minus for ESPN, and then I know there is one other one that I'm forgetting. And then you have uh, VORP, obviously, which is a bit of a uh, MLB derivative. It's like trying to be like a win, uh, no, not a win shares thing. Uh, uh, what do they call it? A wins over repl- uh, wins above replacement. Yeah. So uh, among those three, uh, would you, I, I guess you kind of addressed it, but like, which one do you really prefer? I prefer uh, value over replacement because 
like like I said with plus minus, it's like if you're playing a lot of minutes on a bad team, then your plus minus is going to be horrible because your team is giving up so many points, and that's really not your fault as an individual player. And um, what was the other one you said? You said Bucks plus minus. Uh, yeah, and then uh, win shares. Win shares. Oh, shares, I feel like are relatively important, but that, uh, that's another also on the same note. Like, I mean. How is a win share calculated? Do you know? Yeah, I actually know. I uh, did some research on that. No box score plus minus. I uh, oh crap! Is that is that Embiid? Oh no, he's all right. I thought Embiid got injured. <laughs> I, I had a heart attack for a second. <laughs> he's, he's okay. Okay, yeah. So I unfortunately didn't have time to uh, do my research on VORP. But how uh, win shares is calculated is it's uh, just using like a yeah, pretty uh, a box score based formula where. Uh, it just it amalgamates all of the... Essentially, it's the same as a box score plus minus, aside from the fact that box score plus minus looks at the team's uh, performance more so. But the biggest thing with win shares, and this is something I was actually going to mention when I was talking about why expectations do matter over your uh, true potential, not your true potential, your true performance, is that uh, win shares, how it works, is it assigns uh, the amount of... Uh, win shares that are even available to every player based on its team's overall performance. So a team oh, yeah. so okay. a team like the Warriors, let's say uh, last year where they won uh, 67 games, their players every player on their team could were competing for a pool of 67 wins while a team like the uh, 2015, 2016, 76ers, they were all competing for a pool of seven win share at uh, nine win shares. Okay. I see. So the and like my problem with that is uh, that I, that I think you absolutely have to look at uh, Pythagorean uh, uh, expected uh, wins because like if you don't, then you're gonna have teams that were just clutch something like the last year's Celtics team where they won uh, 48 games, I believe, but they were expected to win 53 based on their point differential. So just right there, you have five wins that are gone from the players at pretty much no fault of their own, just a bunch of clutch plays that aren't repeatable. I think I think that's backwards. I think I think the Celtics won fifty. Oh, okay. Then, then okay. So then they got five extra that they shouldn't. Have yeah, had. yeah, yeah. But yeah, the same point. I know what you mean. Like you could just put another team in for this. Yeah, you know. but um, like even the Raptors, even I think they had like one of the one of the one of the higher totals of wins by less than five points or something like that. I'll check. Um, or even the Timberwolves. I think last year uh, they didn't win that many games, but I think they had a lot of games by only a few points, and they had lost a lot of games by only a few points as well. I'll check um, both. So in situations like that, it's, I mean, I think how you look at advanced metrics, I feel like at the same time, like it, it really, like at the end of the day, the discussions, I, like I hate to say this because this is really unfortunate just in terms of how many bad teams are in the league. But I really feel like when you're looking at, like when you're looking at players to evaluate, I, I genuinely feel like it really should only be players on playoff teams because like, I mean, at, like the end of the day, like the goal for every franchise is that is to win a championship. So if you're not even in the playoffs, I don't really feel like you should be in that many discussions like about anything really, because basketball as a whole is about winning a championship. So if you're not even in contention to win the championship, then like, well, what what is the point of even talking about you? Like other than like you're you're a cool basketball player. Like I mean, like Devin Booker, for example, like he's a he's a fantastic talent, and I think he's going to be very good when the Phoenix Suns finally you know grow into what they're supposed to be, but. As for right now, like, you know, I feel like the most you can say about Devin Booker is that he's a really good scorer and a pretty good player who's going to be good later. But in terms of how you evaluate him right now, I don't really feel like you could put him in conversations about like, oh, like, is he better than this player? Is he better than this player? Like, you know, some people try and say stuff like Devin Booker is already better than Clay Thompson. And like, no. 
I mean, like, you know, like in theory, I guess, like when he's a really good player in like five, six years, then yeah, you can look back and you could say that he, he will be better than Clay Thompson. But as of right now, like you, you can't even really say that about Devin Booker because you don't know anything about what he can do when he has a good team. So yeah, I think yeah, it's more important to evaluate. Like the interesting thing that I like, LeBron is one of my favorite examples about this because LeBron is one of the only players I think who he, he's had the luxury of playing on a really, really good team and not a luxury, but he's had the, you know, the detriment of playing on a really really bad team so we've been able to see that lebron is he's like we can we can easily say that lebron is great no matter what he he's on because he's played with a team that only was only winning 18 19 games without him and elevated them to being a 66 to 61 win team and then he's also played on a good team like miami when he's had other stars with him to also like and he's also won 66 games there so i kind of want this flashlight yeah like he's he's really like LeBron is he's unique in that aspect, and I think he's one of the only players that we have the luxury of being able to do that with. But I think really, I feel like people should really look people should look more at how good someone's team is when they're evaluating how good a player is. Because like this, we brought this up so many times today. But like we were talking about Kevin Durant at the start of the podcast, and like he's elevated by the fact that he has always played on good teams. Like Kevin Durant has not played on a poor team since his rookie year. Like the Thunder were like, you, you know, you say what you want about the Thunder, but at the end of the day, like he made two Western conference finals and he was like, I don't think, I think there was only like one year where they lost in the first round. Like he, he was consistently getting to the playoffs. He had a all-star point guard, like the whole time, even Sergi Baca was, you know, Sergi Baca, I think probably got snubbed out of a defensive player of the year award at some point when he was an amazing defender. Like he was averaging like two and a half blocks per game. Like, you know, and so I, I don't really think it's fair to say that players who are on really good teams are better than players who are on really bad teams because you, you really can't evaluate them on an even playing field. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And uh, sorry about getting distracted with this flashlight. It, it just seems like it can do absolutely everything. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah so, no so just to, to close the book on that uh, point about uh, expected point differential versus uh, not uh, just actual record versus Pythagorean record, uh, the Raptors were uh, one, uh, one, they were expected to win uh, 52 games, they won 51. And then, uh, this is the big one, the Timberwolves, they were expected to win 38 games last year. And they only won 31. Oh, okay. So, th so that's massive. But, uh, yeah, I, I pretty much agree with all your points there. It's pretty ridiculous. I mean, like, just even, like, when you look at players, like, I mean, like, Kyrie Irving, like, the fact that people were considering Kyrie Irving as an MVP candidate earlier in the season to me was ridiculous. Yeah. Like, how can you say that a player who, without LeBron James, was only winning 19, 20 games? Like, I understand that he was young. This is a, this is a tangent that I have all together, but I'm just I'm, I'm going to try. Well, here, I'll, I'll let you go on that tangent because i got to go to the bathroom real quick. All right. And so, basically, since Kyrie Irving has been in the league, just in my opinion, um, <laughs> Kyrie Irving, when I look at his statistics um, – just year by year, like Kyrie Irving, truly, he's an amazing player. Like, don't and you know, I'm probably going to get a lot of hate from a lot of Celtics fans out there. But since Kyrie Irving has been in the league, he really, in my opinion, has not improved all that much as a player. Because, like in his rookie season, he was shooting 47% from the field, 40% from three. He was averaging 19 points per game, around five assists, and a little bit north of three and a half rebounds, and like you know, 1.1 steals and like 0.4 blocks. And now he's in his seventh season, I believe, and he's averaging 25 points per game. But literally every other statistic in terms of how, like his percentage from the free throw line, his percentage from the field, his percentage from three, 
and his assist totals, his steals totals, his pass, his um, rebounding totals, and his blocks totals. Every single thing is the same. And um, he really just, you know, throughout, the only thing that's changed about Kyrie Irving in terms of how he is as a player, the only thing that's changed is because he's just, he's taking more shots per game. And because he's primarily a player who, you know, like he, he operates closest to the basket because he's one of, he's an elite finisher. Like he, he scores more layups. And as a result, he, he, you know, averages four or five, six more points per game. And Kyrie Irving just to have a player who really hasn't made that much improvement in terms of his ability, like his on the defensive level, like he really has not improved at all. He's always been a very poor defender. And, um, he, to have a player like that who hasn't improved at all, just all of a sudden playing on the what was the best team in the East for a long time, like to include him in MVP discussions simply because he's playing on a good team to me is ridiculous when his statistics haven't changed, improved, or really impacted anything. Because even when Kyrie Irving has a really bad game, the Celtics are still able to win. And then when he has a really good game, they're able to win. So Kyrie Irving does not really scream value to me at all because, so, so like, it's to me, it's ridiculous that just because a team is really good, people start considering that team's best player as an MVP candidate. So, yeah, like it, it, we couldn't literally do, and I feel like we have at this point, like just do a whole podcast on why everyone screws up award voting and like just the hundred different ways that they mess it up. But exactly, yeah, like Kyrie's a bad one, and like it's telling that he almost didn't make my all NBA projections. <laughs> Uh, Kyrie, like, I don't know if you would agree. Like, I really don't see Kyrie. Like, Kyrie Irving has not improved as a player since he's been in the league. Like, no, he hasn't. And, like, that's that's really telling on how good he was coming out of college. But, like, you you have to improve. Yeah, like, he, there has been no stride in his game whatsoever. Like, he's added – and, like, this is another interesting thing about Kyrie Irving. And I'm not trying to hate on Kyrie Irving because Kyrie Irving is a spectacular player to watch. He's one of the most entertaining players in the entire NBA. But, like, all this – like, his his – the main attraction about Kyrie Irving is his ability to dribble and handle the ball so well. But every time Kyrie Irving dribbles more, like I saw a statistic on this, or like a little bit uh, around the 2017 NBA Finals, with every dribble that he increases, his field goal percentage goes down. Hmm. So like his his That's field goal percentage when he took one dribble was like 47, and then his field goal percentage when he took like seven or eight was like much lower than that. So. Hmm. <laughs> You'd think that'd be the other way around for a ball handler. It should be right, but like it, it, it sort of goes to show that sometimes he like he gets so caught up in the whole dribbling thing that like it's like if he doesn't get to the basket with it, then it's sort of not really serving any purpose. And um, I mean, like like I, like I said, I love Kyrie Irving, but like defensively, he really hasn't improved at all. Like he, and then just in terms of his shooting, he's always been a really good shooter, and he's always been able to handle the ball really. Like he's added a couple cool little dribble moves to his arsenal, but they really haven't changed his dynamic as a player. Like you, you would, you'll never like when you watch a game from Kyrie Irving, like you'll never get something that you didn't expect, like you would from other players. Like you can really see, like in you can see players like Kevin Durant have really improved since he's been in the league. Like he's he's developed into a much better passer than he was. He's developed into a better rebounder, a better shot blocker. LeBron has, you know, developed into a much better shooter than he used to be. Um, Stephen Curry has developed his game in terms of how well he can dribble the ball, how well he can finish around the rim. Uh, even Clay Thompson has taken small strides in terms of some not now like sometimes he'll dunk the ball and drive the ball and he, he Clay Thompson can even shoot threes off the dribble sometimes and um, well Clay like, Thompson it, is the best spot up shooter in NBA history. Yeah, he, yeah, I'm sure, but. At the same time, like now, like I feel like if Clay Thompson was able to develop a handle on the basketball, he could be extremely elite because he's he's six seven. He's an amazing defender, and like if he was just able to add, like 
Clay Thompson is one of the most intriguing players in the NBA to me because I feel like if you put him on his own team and put him in a situation where he really had to carry a team and had to learn how to do things like dribble the ball and handle the ball, then, you know, it could be really interesting. But just, you know, basically back to the MVP thing, like, it's just, it's, you shouldn't be able like, you shouldn't consider players who just haven't really done anything spectacular in terms of themselves and just because they're on a better team, place them on a higher pedestal. That's just ridiculous. Oh, absolutely. And, uh, yeah, with the Kyrie thing, I, I really have never thought of it as he's never improved. But beyond the fact that he's not good defensively, what concerns me is he doesn't care that he's not good defensively. I mean, yeah, and, like, I remember Skip Bayless, going back to the infamous Skip Bayless. Oh, God. At the beginning of the season, Skip Bayless was trying to make this argument that Kyrie Irving is now a better defender than LeBron James. What the because, hell? Because Kyrie Irving has a better defensive rating um, than LeBron. But, like, this is what he just didn't acknowledge at all. So the Celtics at the beginning, because they're the best defensive team in basketball this season, yeah. I think, number one or something like that, they had uh, their four, They had five players. They had Kyrie Irving, Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, Marcus Smart, and Al Horford. All of those players were in the top 20 in defensive rating. But that's only because the team is so good defensively. Like, it has nothing to do with them. And Kyrie Irving, I think, was 12th in the league on in defensive rating. But that's only because he spent so much time on the court when his team was playing really good defense. Yeah. Like, if you watch him play individually, like, Kyrie Irving really, like, he... And again, like, he, like even, like, Steph Curry is he's not defensively as well. But Steph Curry is at least, like, he utilizes the fact that he has long arms and he, he can be disruptive and he can get in the passing lane and he can be a smart... Yeah. Like, he's a good team defender, yes. Yeah, he's a good team, exactly. And Kyrie Irving just really isn't. Like, he, he's sort of, like, he, he is one of those players that, you know, you, you can't, you have to, you really have to hide him on defense. Yeah, definitely. And it, that gets into uh, a point that I was uh, trying to find an opening for, actually, uh, going back to my really difficult question. One of my follow-up questions I had for that are, how do you control for uncontrollable factors, like, you know, for the player, stuff like team system, their teammates, luck, and like, how do you account for them? And should you even look at them when you're evaluating um, for these awards? I think luck you shouldn't look at because I mean, it's easy for haters to just say, "Oh, that was lucky." Like I remember a lot of people when LeBron hit that one crazy shot against the Wizards, and he hit like the turnaround, and he fell out of bounds. People were like, "Oh, that's just luck." Like, yeah, like okay, but like, and I, I mean, suppose that's like a that's more of a baseball thing for me because like in baseball you'll have people talk about like, "Oh, you had a really good ball uh, batting average on balls in play." But your yeah. average shouldn't have been that good, so I guess that's just not an NBA thing. I, I personally like I, I could I, I you could call a lot of shots lucky just based on what you think. Like if you don't like Steph Curry, then it's easy for you to say that that Steph Curry shot from half court against the Thunder in 2016 was luck. And like if you're if you hate LeBron James, then it's easy to say that the Kyrie Irving three against Steph Curry in the 2016 NBA Finals was luck. And if you're a LeBron, if you love the hell out of LeBron and you hate Kevin Durant and the fact that he went to the Warriors, you can say that the shot in game three in LeBron's face, you can call that luck. Like you, I, so I don't think luck should be factored into it at all. But yeah, I guess I it's too easy like, of an opening. Sorry? It, it just adds too easy of an opening for people. Exactly. And also, if, uh, but I, in terms of team, though, I, I do really feel like you, you need to, like, I wish that there was just a simple ranking system, like in terms of just number, like, based on literally like every talent an NBA player can have, you can just give them a number on a scale of like one to like 20, how good an NBA player they are. And like, you know what I mean? And then like, based on like, if you were to just rank players just in terms of their, like just if you give them a number for their value on a scale of like 20 being like the best player in the entire league and one being the absolute worst player in the entire league. And then you can use like, you know, you can use decimals. Like you could say that like a 
you know, like you could say like a player like I don't know, like you could say that uh, Anthony Davis is like a eighteen and a half because you know you think that while he's an amazing player, you can't give him the extra points because you know of his inability to pass the ball and his inability to stroke it really well from the outside. But you know things like that. Like if you were just able to give players like a solid number total to how good of a player they are, and then you assign that to every player in the league, um, and then then that way you could be able to evaluate it and be like, okay, like t- in total, his team without him is this good. And then that way you can sort of tell how good their team is. And then the players with the smallest total for that, like that means that those are the players who are playing on the worst teams. And then you would be like, so like if you were to do that with the, you know, the top, uh, the top four teams in each conference, like it's easy to say like the Warriors, Rockets and Cavs, um, they, they all have better individual players than you know a team like let's say the Blazers or the Pelicans, and that way you would really be able to see the value of a player like Anthony Davis and Damian Damian Lillard, Demar Derozan, etc. Yeah, and I, I, I honestly I think they should avoid the decimals because uh, one of the big I'm trying to figure out what they're doing with this tel- uh, tessellator, uh, telestrator or whatever, but. Uh, yeah, I think it's, a, it's something that they re- everyone always really avoids when they're ranking players. And like, I get that this isn't supposed to rank them. It's just well, I guess it is, but it's not for the purposes of telling you who's the best. Is that it's they, just for the purpose of rating them basically yeah. to evaluate others? Yeah. And like one of the biggest things that people always miss on is they never do it on a tier system, where you have like, okay, this guy is a top tier player. He's like a top five player in the league. We're not going to say if he's number one or five. We're just going to say he's a top five. Then these guys are like the next eight or so. Then we have like the next ten, and then whatever. They never do that, and I think that's something that people should really think about doing more often. That's not something I do because I think it's a lot more interesting to get into the nitty gritty ones. But if you, yep. if you just talk about like, okay, is Kyle Lowry a better uh, player than I don't know, uh, uh, what's a good one? I don't want to say John Wall because that is close. Uh, uh, Damian Lillard, either. yeah, yeah, Damian Lillard. Uh, well, that's pretty close too. I don't know. Here, how about this? Uh, so you have Clint. Uh, who's better? I don't know. Uh, Clint Cabela or Nikola Jokic? Like that's not particularly close. Uh, Clint Cabela is mostly just a product of his system, and like you can get people to agree on that. So you put them a tier apart. So you uh, yeah. do you do rankings where they're not going to be inherently controversial, and you're not going to have people being like, "Oh no, he's not number seven of all time. He's number six of all time." Exactly. Like, me personally, like, just going on the tiers, like, I rank, I, I do have my personal tiers. Like, I think tier one of NBA, like, is, like, I've got players like LeBron, Kevin Durant, James Harden, Steph Curry, Anthony Davis, like, that's tier one, and Kawhi Leonard when he's healthy. And then tier two, I have players like, you know, like Russell Westbrook and Damian Lillard, and then you have uh, um, uh, Paul George, for example, I consider him a tier two player, um, you know, and, like, and it's not even it's not even just based on like a lot of that it's in my opinion is just based on how well that they're able to impact their team because I feel like the tier one players are the players who can really turn a team around and they're the type of players you know Kevin Durant is a little controversial but just based on talent his like immense talent I feel like he has to be in tier one but like you know like James Harden Steph Curry LeBron James Anthony Davis like they can shoulder teams basically. Like, they can be the best players on championship teams, I feel like. Yeah, and anyone that says otherwise for Anthony Davis, just look at the past two weeks. Yeah, exactly. And, like, I mean, like, the thing with Anthony Davis is I feel like Anthony Davis is the only big man in the NBA who could be the best player on a championship team. Like, that's really how I categorize the, the top tier one players in the NBA. Like, 
can, are you capable of being the best player on an NBA championship team? And Kevin Durant did that last year, but it's, it's just a little, it's weird because Steph Curry is so good that like, and he's so important to the team that it's like, you can't, you can, you can say that Kevin Durant's the best individual player, but he's not really the most valuable player on the team. Yeah. So you know, that, there's controversy there with the Warriors, but like in terms of everyone else, like, yeah, I agree. Like people should rank people more in tiers than they do like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. But just in terms of what I was talking about, like assigning players, just a, a value to like how good they are as a player, like just add up their total skills and like, you know, you, you give them a number and then like, you're able to tell, like you're able to tell team totals is like, okay, like based just in terms of how talented a team is, like, this is what they are. Oh. And this goes back to your whole thing about expectancy. Like you'll expect a player who's on a really good team to have a pretty good year because I mean, like they, they should win a lot of games. They should, they should have a good performance, but that way it makes awarding easier because then you, you're able to tell who was actually more valuable, like who did more with less. Yeah. And like it's so important to look at that because today, and we have computers that can crunch all these numbers. You can say, okay, this guy played, I don't know, like 4,000 minutes in a season. We can look at every single minute that they played in a season and divvy it up based on the strength of the team on the court and the strength of the players that he was facing it off against. We can do that because we have computers, and we need to, even today, like with the incredible metrics that we're able to do, like all of the regression-based ones, we I still feel like we're not fully leveraging the power of the technology that we have, and like a lot of people are like, oh, I don't want to do uh, proof by exhaustion. That's that's weak. We should be proving absolutely. If you have a tool that can uh, do this stuff by exhaustion, and like what I'm talking about is a debate going on in mathematics where it's like, oh, can you should you uh, test every single uh, test case, or should you have to do the old-fashioned way where you do general terms? If you can do proof by exhaustion. You always should, because all we're trying to do is get the re correct result. We're not trying to be, oh, but that's not the beautiful way to do it. I don't care if it's yep. the beautiful way. We want the answer. Exactly, yeah. And, I mean, like, it, the MVP, M, like MVP voting, I think, to a degree, is always going to be subjective. Like, there are always going to be so many. Like, to me, the most ridiculous thing in NBA, one of the most ridiculous things in NBA history was that in 2013, one voter voted for Carmelo Anthony to be MVP. Yeah. That's why LeBron James did not win unanimously in 2013, because one player thought that Carmelo Anthony on, like, the five-seed Knicks, averaging 28 points per game and, like, three assists and six rebounds should be MVP, as opposed to LeBron, who averaged 27, 8, and 7 on 57% shooting, 41% from three. Like, that, that was just, like, that's ridiculous. Like, I, I think people just need to be, like... I really feel like voting for the MVP award should be off of unbiased, subjective people who don't have connections with all these players. Because, like, you know, like players like like Chris Broussard, for example, isn't like I've mentioned him a couple times today. Like he's in a, he's he has a vote on the for MVP, and he um like he, like he's on like all these shows talking about like oh like you know LeBron is the best player in the world, like Durant's close, like he has too many like he's like he talks to some players individually, like it's it's not just unbiased watchers, like it's people that actually know the players, and I just feel like that's a little bit unfair because then it's unbiased. Like, I mean, I just wish that voting was just completely objective and not like, you know, people having opinions about like, oh, like this player should be this because he's done this and stuff. Like, you know, and I also feel like there shouldn't be such a thing as like makeup awards. Like, you know, like some, like, like I don't want James Harden, like, like let's say James Harden somehow lost the MVP. Like let's say he got injured tonight and then he didn't play any game the rest of the season. And then the rest of the season, Anthony Davis averaged like 50 points per game. 
and Anthony Davis ended up winning MVP this season. Like, I wouldn't want the voters to feel like they have to include James Harden in the voting next year just because he wasn't able to win it this year. Like, it, it shouldn't be like that at all. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, just to conclude that point on like why we need to make advanced metrics uh, better and why it's so important to talk about about them right now, is that even like the very best advanced metrics that actual sports betters are using, stuff like our APM, which is the main one that they use. If you know anything about regression coefficients, uh, basically uh, these uh, advanced metrics are trying to predict future performance. And you can just run a regression test for, uh, you're in, actually, you're in AP study, you probably know what that, that is, or if you don't, you'll find out in a month, where like, yep. you're just trying to see how the future performance is going to relate to the expected one. Literally, you can just like divide them and say, okay, here's our coefficient. If it's closer to one, then you have a better regression coefficient. The best that we have right now is about, and this is compared to the ideal of one, is a point six five for the entire week. Wow, that's not even two thirds. So, like, we we still have a lot of work to do. And on, on your point about uh, crap, what was your point? Uh, I lost it. What was your point again? Mm-hmm. About what exactly? Uh, just what you were saying before about ranking players and giving them a number. Uh, no. After that, like, what you just finished saying. Oh, about like if James Harden were to, oh, like, I don't want any objectivity in voting. Oh, yeah, 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 thank you. Okay, so that sounds like the argument, and like this is an argument I agree with for, like the ideal leader of a country in politics is is the philosopher king. But we can never get the philosopher king because that's not an ideal world. And, but I, I am curious to see for voting, do you think it would be better off if we just did like an American Idol system where the entire country or the entire world can vote on who deserves the MVP? Do you think that would be better? I, I, the entire world, I think, would be a little ridiculous because then you'd have like the entire country of Georgia voting for Zaza Pachulia. Uh, yeah. But I think, like, I feel like maybe it could be a little bit similar to like the, like, maybe you could do, because one of the more one of the one of the NBA awards that I feel like is extremely subject like objective is the all rookie teams because every year on the all rookie teams you you literally you only just see the players who deserve to be there like you don't see like like it like it's never a case like for the all NBA teams like there's always like one it's like oh my god like why is he that like why was Clay Thompson all on all on the all NBA thirteen in 2016 and James Harden didn't make one at all like that was ridiculous and. I think the reason that the all rookie teams are so um, objective and it's just so like, these are the best rookies. These are the best all rookie teams. Like, like you have unknown players on the all rookie teams, but no one cares because like, you know, like it's the all rookie team and those are decided by the coaches and the coaches, the coaches vote for who they think the best rookies are. And then they're not allowed to vote for their own players. Like that's so simple and it's so proper. Like the coaches in the NBA know so much because they see these players, they coach against these players. They have to game plan against these players. They know what they have to worry about. They know what they can't worry about. Like, I feel like they should give more of an impact to like, I feel like it should be a combination of like legitimate, like basketball analysts, not like media members because the media is so, so biased sometimes. I feel like it should just be like a combination of like actual NBA analysts, like the people who do it for a living, like, you know, the analytics guys and like the, and like the rules should just state that like, you're not allowed to vote for anyone from your own team. And then you're able to just get something completely objective because like there's, there's no reason a coach would have a bias for a player if they can't vote for their own player. You know what I mean? 
Yeah, and I think that's a fantastic point. I forget what... I want to say the NFL does a similar thing for one of its uh, top-tier voting systems. Uh, No, actually, I'm thinking of the MLB, what they do for uh, doing the benches for their uh, all-star teams, and those always turn out great. But uh, would you want to expand that to uh, GMs also get the vote? Yeah, as long as... I I feel like it should just be people who are completely objective. Yeah, like the GMs even is fine as long as they're not allowed to vote for their own player because... You know, then Daryl Morey would cast as many votes as possible for James Harden. But like, you know, like if you if you just keep it completely objective, then I feel like that's how we would get the best results. Because to have media members and like all this stuff involved, like the All Star Game is fine to have you know a little bit of subjectivity because everyone wants to see their favorite players in a game that's an exhibition. But like to like it's not really fair to these players to have so much like so many opinionated views for voting because. Like, when you look back on James Harden's career, like, you could legitimately say, like, like James Harden it could be a, like, he's going to be a one-time MVP, but when you look back on his career, he could have been a three-time MVP, and it's just not fair from a legacy standpoint to him. Yeah, definitely, and that's the argument for uh, why you should uh, look at players based on voting shares and, like, the their uh, performance in the polls overall. Like, if you get a second place or something, then you get two points versus, uh, like, a first place, you get three points or whatever. Yeah. But, yeah, it, I, I think that'd be a much better system than what we have right now. And, I, I frankly, I don't know why we don't do it, to be honest. Like, it's, it's not like the media members need that role. Exactly. And, like, also, like, another point, um, just going off the same thing, like, from, from the legacy standpoint thing that I'm saying, like, a lot of people in the, in the debate against, um, like, I've heard a lot that Michael Jordan and uh, LeBron James, for example, like, Michael Jordan has a Defensive Player of the Year award, but there was no social media then factoring into any of the decisions. And then LeBron James ended up finishing second in defensive player of the year voting twice. And he like, the, like I personally feel like it was just a lot of media fatigue, not wanting to give him the award over and over again. Yeah. And that's also not fair. Like you, like just because you're tired of voting for the guy doesn't mean that you can't give it to him. Like that's just dumb. Like if he earned it, then he earned it. And LeBron James definitely should have been the defensive player of the year in 2013. But because of things like voter fatigue and just, you know, the all-around distaste for the Miami Heat at the time, like, people ended up giving it to Mark Gasol when he clearly did not deserve it. And, you know, like, that's that, that sort of thing is just unfair. Like, I, I genuinely feel like if it came down to just coaches having to, like, Ooh. worry about LeBron James as a defender, then, like, LeBron James probably would have had one or maybe even two Defensive Player of the Year awards. And it's just it's, it really just doesn't do anyone any favors to have the system that we have now, I feel like. I feel like it's the only way that it is, like, there's a panel of voters and because we've had a panel of voters for so long, we just keep doing that. But, you know, similarly to like all the other things in the NBA, like, you know, we're, we're playoff seating might be changing and the all-star game has changed. And the whole thing about NBA, like being okay with some gambling and like, you know, I feel like it's just one of those things that should be addressed by the commissioner. Yeah. And, uh, on the point about, uh, voting shares, I think that, or not voting shares, just award shares. I think that actually solves the problem of uh, voter fatigue because if if you, a bunch of players are getting like second every year, then you could say, okay, uh, LeBron James can still get the award this year, but uh, this guy's going to get second place, and that still means something. While right now it means absolutely nothing if you get second place versus four hundredth place. Yep, exactly. Like no one remembers who got second. Like people just talk about like, oh, like okay, you didn't win. Sorry. Yeah, it, it's ridiculous. Uh, do you have anything else on this topic? No, I'm, I'm good. Okay, so I, 
I, I'm curious to see what you thought about this. I tried to talk about it with uh, Bijan, but he doesn't really follow any American sports. So, uh -huh. so something that I think could actually uh, solve the tanking problem, uh, we haven't really talked about this, we just talked about how to fix uh, draft reform, is uh, like a, you know, in European sports, how a lot of them do a relegation system where like the bottom three or bottom four teams in the league, they get moved down to like uh, the league just below it. Do you think that the? I'm sorry. I said, "Oh wow!" <laughs> like, yeah. Was, wow. Do you think the NBA could benefit from a system where they had, I don't know, maybe they just uh, brought in like two expansion teams or something, and then just divided the league in half and said, "Okay, uh, or not?" Yeah, I guess just divided the league in half. You don't really have a choice, and said, "Okay, in five years, we're gonna divide the league in half. Uh, whoever has the worst winning percentage over these next five years, you're gone." And not, not gone, like you're in a lower tier, and then the top three teams every year in that lower tier, they get moved back up to the NBA, and the, the bottom three teams in the NBA get moved down to the bottom, the tier right below. Do you I think, think that'd be a better system? I think it might come across as a little extreme, but at the same time, I feel like it would work because the NBA is so different from like the other sports leagues, and like with the NFL, like any, like a team that's completely awful can come around next year and be in the playoffs and yes. get close to the Super Bowl, but like the NBA is more of a thing where it takes progression and it takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of years. Um, but um, I feel like you would have to be very careful about the division. Like I really feel like it would have to be, uh, it would have to be like top half and lower half because you know, you, you could end up with a, like in a situation like in 2015 with uh, Oklahoma city where they just missed out on the playoffs because of some injuries. Yeah. And then like, I don't think a team like that should have to be relegated only because you know, they had some injuries, but yeah, but no, you was, you would just tell that team that they're going to be back up the next year. Yeah, like I mean, but then at the same time, like you know, like it could cause friction, but at the same time, I don't really see a problem with that system. Like, <clears throat> I, I just feel like there definitely should be some punishment for tank. Like, I, I just don't think that it's like you can't just like, like you can't just waste people's time for a whole year of just not trying. Like that's just so. I mean, honestly, at this point, I feel like things that to combat tanking should sort of be reprimanded so yeah and like the, the other thing with it is it not only does it combat tanking it makes the games between the worst teams incredibly interesting because like if you're watching something like the epl you'll be watching like games between say uh i don't know uh, uh what are two uh, really bad team maybe like swansea and then like a crystal palace like to, free of the free of like the two of the worst teams in the league that's an incredibly interesting game because those teams might get relegated down into the league championship and then they might lose out on millions of dollars the next year because of their uh, team's mistakes and they have to play their hearts out and like even those games can be more exciting than like a top five game because those teams are actually playing for their lives at that point yeah uh, but it, uh, the only the only thing with it was like it, it could be just a little bit sad i guess because like to a degree like some teams who just don't have any talent might just you know not ever get out of it but at the well, same I mean, time it, like, it always goes in cycles you're not you're not going to be down there forever yeah, yeah like it's some it, it would be interesting to see how they would have to draft as a result of that you know like would, would you do it in the sense of like every team still gets one draft pick yeah i, I would just keep well first of all we, i would just change the draft system to uh, what we uh we proposed last week but if you're going to keep it the same then uh hmm yeah, that's a good point. If you want to keep the draft the same, I say uh, throw out the draft as it is right now because we already went over why that's a problem and it would only become more of a problem with this relegation thing. 
Do you think that this is a thought that I had actually? What do you think about the the idea of not being able to trade future draft picks, future first round draft picks? I think that's a terrible suggestion coming from the uh, coming from a baseball fan. I absolutely hate baseball for that because in baseball you can't trade draft picks. Let them yeah. trade their draft picks. I saw that. I saw that idea. I saw that idea somewhere else. Like I completely, I agree with you. I would not want it at all. I was reading an article the other day about how. If you if you limited teams from being able to trade their first round draft picks, then it would like and you just did it in terms of worst team to best team. Like I just feel like in just just in terms of the excitement of the league, like the Jimmy Butler thing never would have been able to happen, and yeah. like he would have been stuck in Chicago, and like you know the the Celtics wouldn't even be the Celtics. No, <laughs> so. and like if you want to be an idiot like Propoyov and uh, trade away five years worth of draft picks, you should be allowed to be an idiot. Like we yeah, shouldn't... exactly. Like you, you shouldn't do favors for people. Like in terms of like, so I agree. Like I disagree with the article as a whole, but the argument that it was making was basically like, if you only allowed it, like you would get more of a, you would get more of a like a like an actually like a cyclic NBA. Like in terms of like, the best teams would at some point fade out because they would constant. They would get like their stars would get old and their draft picks wouldn't be as good, and the teams that are bad would get better because they're bringing in more talent and there wouldn't be the whole like. Celtic situations where they're sort of allowed to do both. Well, coming from the baseball system, that's not remotely true at all. But yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it was. I I, I disagree with it as well. Yeah, but I, and and like again with that, most of the good teams in the NBA like that are historically good. It's because they have historically good owners, and you should be credited for that. If you're a good owner, that's to your credit. And like these historically bad teams, like the the Suns or the Kings or the. Uh, who else? Um, trying to think of another bit. or the Knicks. It's because you have a bad owner, and like if you're doing a bad job, you deserve to have bad performance. We shouldn't be trying to protect you from yourself. And I, yeah, I that that's how I feel about that. But I, I'm curious to see how you th- what you think about this because we we always talk about how the NBA should be fixed. Uh, do you think that the current playoff system should be as it is? Like, do you think that sixteen out of thirty teams should be making the playoffs every year? I I genuinely feel like I don't think there needs to be one through eight. Um, I feel like you would get better, more competitive series if you just cut out seven and eight, and you made it a rather than a like if you made it a twelve team, sixteen in each conference. Because, like, I understand that we've had. There have been very, very few like situations where like the thing about the NBA is that the NBA is not an unpredictable thing. Like the NBA, it's like you see the best teams and then one of the best teams is going to win the championship. Like you're not going to have outliers because we have NBA series where you have to win four out of seven games rather than like, you know, something like I feel like it would just be better if you cut out once like, you know, the bottom two teams, because then like rather than having four series, you could have three, and then you could space them out a little bit more as well, and then you would get more rest in the playoffs, more time in the playoffs, and with that, you would get better series in the playoffs because I feel like a matchup of one and six is going to be much more competitive than a matchup of one and eight because if you look at a year like this year, like, okay, like, one through eight, okay, the Warriors would probably, or the Rockets would probably completely trounce on the Clippers, but if the Rockets had to face Oklahoma City in the first round, that could actually be really interesting because, you know, Oklahoma City, Harden having to come back there, Harden getting, you know, starting his MVP run in the playoffs, you know, or like closing out his MVP run and starting the playoffs in his old team. Like that could make for a really good story. Like I, I really just don't see the point of having a seven and eight seed and having eight, eight teams in each conference, especially when like, like the seven and eight seed in the Eastern conference wouldn't even be like, they would like, you know, depending on, I'm not sure what the, 
disparity is right now between East and West, but like in certain years, like the bottom two teams in one conference wouldn't even be close. But I, I first, so first and foremost, I think there should only be 12. But the reason that I think that we should stay in the East versus West in terms of, so I don't think that we should go one through 16 or one through 12, as I'm suggesting, but okay. Um, I think that it should be East versus West simply because of this. Like if, because one thing, like I, this is a recent thing as well. I feel like, because it's not like the East has always been horrible. Like the East was pretty good in like the early two thousands when you had the Pistons and then the Pacers were pretty good for a while. And then obviously like the Cavaliers came along when LeBron came and then in the nineties, like, you know, you, you, you had the, the bad boy Pistons and <clears throat> the Pacers then as well. Like, the, the whole thing about the East and West is sort of just a temporary thing. And I don't really feel like there should be some big overreaction to it in terms of like, oh, like the NBA has been around for what, 70 years or something like that. And yeah, like this has only really been a thing for the past maybe five, six years. So I don't really see the need to overreact to it. And also like, this is one of the main arguments I've heard against it, which I sort of agree with is that like, if you're playing a series and it's like, if it's like, let's say like a, you know, uh, let's say Portland to Miami, right? Like if that ends up being a series, then like the, the travel for that would be absolutely ridiculous. Like the, yeah. the flights would be so long and just like, and then also uh, another thing in terms of ratings, there, there are many more East coast, uh, there are many more television sets on the East coast as opposed to the West coast. So most NBA ratings and NBA viewership comes from the Eastern conference. So if you don't have an Eastern conference and then like your top, nine, 10 teams are only from the Western conference, then you're going to have much lower viewership and the NBA is not going to be making nearly as much money. So for, for those reasons, basically the travel, um, you know, revenue for the league itself. Um, and also like, you know, just from like a diehard, like a, like a lover of the NBA, like I, I love watching basketball. I just feel like it's a cooler dynamic because, you know, you have so much history behind the East and the West thing. Like you have the Celtic Lakers rivalry, you have, uh, you know, the, you know, the memorable moments, like, you know, the supersonics and the, and the, and Jordan's bulls and things like that. Like, I just feel like it's like, if you have like a, you know, you, if you have like a, like a, like a, uh, an all California, uh, NBA finals or an all Texas NBA finals, like it is just going to be so like, like not as many people from the outside are going to watch it. You know what I mean? Because like, it's like, Oh, like some, like, cause I know some some like some really diehard fans of their teams like some they, they just stop watching once their team gets eliminated. So like it's like if you have a lot of people like that and then you have an all Texas NBA finals, it's just the state of Texas watching the NBA finals and not that many viewers from elsewhere. Um, yeah, I just feel like it draws a lot more viewership to the league to have it in two conferences, and it also just I just don't think there's a need to overreact because you know once LeBron once the players right now like fade a little bit like. It, it, the East is already coming back to being really good. You have Kyrie Irving, who's a good young player in the East. You have Giannis, you have uh, Ben Simmons, you have Joel Embiid. Um, you have, you know, Andre Drummond and Blake Griffin. That's, you know, they're still good players who are on the same team in the Eastern Conference. Like, and then in the West, you have like Jokic. It's not like, so maybe like right now, the talent disparity is really big, but in a couple years, it really, I don't think it really will be. So, for those reasons, I really don't think that it's too big of a deal. To, I don't think it's too big of a deal, the difference right now. I, I thought that was Dr. E for a second in this commercial. Oh. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no, I think that's an amazing point on why we shouldn't go to an East and West, uh, dissolve the East and West system, and, and nobody ever talks about the points you just made. Some people talk about the travel thing, and personally my solution to that is going to come up later, but 
it's a great point that rivalries are so important, and I've never thought of the fact that the Eastern Conference has so many more viewers, despite the fact that the West has a lot more uh, talent right now. It's because, like, small markets, like, teams like... No, Denver, absolutely. Sacramento, like, all those teams don't really get any viewership, but in the East, you have Boston, you've got New York, you have Cleveland, you have Detroit, Chicago, like, you have basketball in Miami, like, you have all the... More of the basketball-centric cities are in the Eastern Conference, so you get more viewership from them. A hundred percent. I've just never thought of it, and never noticed it, but... yeah. But with your one through six system, so show me what what does the first round look like? Um, the first round uh, it would be uh, Houston and uh, I think it would be Houston San Antonio actually. Houston San Antonio it would be Golden State and uh, well the Spurs whatever. the Spurs are the seventh seed. So do you mean the Rockets and the Thunder? Right, Rockets Thunder, and then it would be uh, Warriors Wolves, and then it would be. Um, Trailblazers, Pelicans. Yeah, Trailblazers, Pelicans. So, like, like then we're ha- sorry. Basically, like having it one through eight just sort of seems like it doesn't really seem like there's any reason for it because, like, the the seventh and eighth, like the sixth seed is the lowest seed that's ever won a championship. So, like, and like, there's it's so rare for an eighth seed to dethrone a one seed. Like that, I don't think that's happened once since two thousand. 11 which was when Derek Rose got yeah, injured which doesn't really count because of that yeah yeah or it was the 2012 playoffs and then before that it was five years prior like it, it's it's such a sporadic thing that like and those teams never go on to actually get anywhere like an eighth seed has made the NBA made the NBA finals one time and they lost and that was and that, in a strike shortened season yeah that was the the miracle mix thing with Jeff Van Gundy and all that but like so like for those reasons I feel like if it's just six teams and you have three series instead of eight like you can get more coverage of three series instead of four series, and you're able to sort of like because you don't have as many teams. I just feel like it, it just it gives more space, and then you don't have the game plan for as much. And I feel like we would get better thought out series because, like, you know, oftentimes like for NBA coaches and like NBA coaching staffs, like you have to game plan for a series ahead as well because, like, you know, you you, you have you have to keep in mind who you're going to play in the next round of a series as well as the team that's in front of you. But like, if you only have three series. You know, they, you have less you have less teams to game plan for. You have like you're basically just able to like I feel like worry about less and just focus more on like okay, there's six rather than eight because and just overall like you don't even ever really get any competition from a seven and eight, so it doesn't seem like there's a point. Well, he, here's my thing, I, I and I think this is a lot of other people's hold ups as well. What happens in the next round? Would when, when one of the teams have to have a buy? Let's see. You could go. So if it was, so it would go one six, two five, and then three four. Yeah. Right. So then you would have. So let's just pretend like the Rockets, Warriors, winners, and then you could have a buy. I feel like that would that would be sort of something to work around. Um, no, honestly, I would be okay with it because I feel like it. I feel like if you were able to get a second round buy then you would like it would put so much more incentive into teams trying during the regular season okay i i, I can see your point there but here let me let me give my system because i i think it'll be interesting to see our debate between that so here's my system and i've, I've mentioned this before to you but I, you probably don't remember it so my system is is every team that has a winning record you make the playoffs Okay. I don't care about conference. I, I just. What if you're forty-one and forty-one? 
Uh, nope. Got to be a winning. Got to got to be a winning record. I if you're forty one and forty one, yeah, forty one and forty one is no better than zero and zero. So that's my that's my that's my argument for that. So let's say there's ten teams that have a really good record. You, ten teams are in. You got six teams that are in. You got five teams like it was in the Eastern Conference a couple years ago. Five teams in the playoffs. So that, that that's my system. I'm keeping the Eastern Conference versus Western Conference. But uh, I also have an interesting uh, caveat to that. To solve the travel problem, I have a system where, and I mentioned this uh, as a teaser at the very beginning of the podcast, I, you calculate how many home teams the better seed should get based on how many more wins they have. Now, I haven't actually given thought to how many more wins it should be. Maybe if you have, like, I, I'm trying to figure that out in my head right now. Maybe if you have, like, six more wins, you should get an extra home game. So that means that, like, for, let's just pretend this was applied to the 1 through 8 system right now. If you had, like, a 4v5 matchup, I don't think you should be given uh, credit for travel. Like, you're a 4v5 seed. Like, you, we're not trying to protect you. Like, you, you could have been better. You could have avoided this problem. But someone like the Ra- Ra- the Raptors Bucks or, like, the Rockets uh, Clippers, which I think is what most people were talking about, like, having to travel across the country when you didn't really need to, you're already going to sweep the team. Maybe you could have all four of your games at home, and then you wouldn't have to worry about that problem. Yeah, you basically you're saying you would travel for less games. Yeah. Yeah, that could be interesting. I just think, like, the one thing about the NBA to me is, like, when you have a, like, the one thing, like, like when you have a player like LeBron, and, like, he, he, he saves up all his energy for the postseason, you sort of see that he coasts throughout the regular season, and I just feel like that ends up being meaningless. So yeah, so like, like you need factors, more of, and like sometimes teams like Golden State get so good that it doesn't even matter if they're the one seed. Like they don't care whether or not they have to start a series on the road or on the mm-hmm. or at home. So like I just feel like it puts a lot more incentive if you get an entire week to rest because that makes you so much, you know, like that makes you a lot more prepared, I guess. Like and if you earned that during the regular season, and like I feel like that's an advantage that you earned, like. If you played hard enough to get the number one seed, then you should get more time off. Definitely, and this is where I was going to get into how the buys work. So, like, obviously, with my system, you could have anywhere from, I think, the most teams with a winning record in one conference ever was like, I want to say, ten teams. Wasn't there like a a thing a couple of years ago where the Thunder had like a winning record yeah, and then. And then, like, yeah, one even, even LeBron, LeBron James won 45 games one year and they didn't make the playoffs. Yeah, uh, like, I think there was He's one, very, one, very good. yeah, but, but I don't think it's ever been more than 10. But what yeah. I'm saying for the NBA is they just have a system for each one of these. If you have five teams, there's a system for that six, seven, eight, nine, ten. And here's how I would recommend the, that they do it. So, for the 10, I'd recommend that they give the number one and two seed a buy for the first round. So, if you're good enough, you get your buy. And then they, they just do one through eight from there, and then that gives you uh, five teams. Uh, and then I'm trying to I'm trying to figure out off the top of my head how this. Hmm. Do you think you should do that, or should we have it be a seven v ten, and then an eight v nine to determine uh, which two teams make the playoffs from there? Probably an eight v nine because it would just be closer. Okay, so let's say let's say they do like a uh, uh, pre playoffs thing right there, and then you do a one through eight from there. Uh, same thing for uh, for uh, one uh, one through nine. You just have the what would that be? That be the eight and nine seed to face off to figure out who makes the playoffs, and then uh, so like those teams that make the playoffs and were better, they get their buy as well. 
1 through 8 stays the same. 1 through 7, you, uh, trying to figure that one out, uh, you give the number 1 seed a buy, and then you just do uh, 2v7, 3v6, 4v5, and then you just go for uh, 1 through 4 from there. Yeah, I just feel like there should be more value placed on, you know, the regular season, because, like, it just seems like at this point, like, whenever a team gets good, they just get complacent, and then it just makes the regular season less fun to watch, and, like, 82 games is a huge, like, a lot of people love to follow the NBA, so I just feel like it'd be better if the games as a whole were good, and, you know, even if the NBA, like, if they didn't, if they thought that giving a bye to the best team was, you know, too much of an advantage, and, like, too much rest could, would be, like, too much of an advantage, but, like, even if they disagreed with it, that you could just do the top four teams in each conference and then just have, you know, like one place four and then two place three in each conference. And then like, that's that. And then you just go with four. And then like, rather than having a first round and then a semi and then a conference finals, it would just be semis, conference finals, finals. And then, you know, that, that would also just, rather than having to play four series in a playoff, you would only play three. And then you can just, you know, like you can just, you're able to get more rest and you can put more spacing between it. And I feel like it would just make for better series as well, because like it, it would make first round match. It would make the, the, the new, the semi-conference would be, or the new first round would be semis. And that, that would make it more competitive as well. Because if you're start if like, if you're a two seed and you have, and you're game planning for a seven seed, like that's a, that's much easier to do than to game plan immediately for a third seed. Like, you know what I mean? Like, like, imagine if San Antonio had to come out the gate playing Houston last year as opposed to playing Memphis first. Like, you know, you don't really get, like, a, as much of a warm-up, and you don't really get, like, to, you know, you don't really... I feel like it's more... It would be just be more competitive, which I feel like the NBA needs. Yeah, and, like, I, I think that's the biggest thing with both of our systems. It's just we, we want to prioritize the playoffs more, and we want you to feel like you have to win as many games as you... Sorry, not prioritize the playoffs, prioritize the regular season more. And we want you to feel like you have to win as many games in the regular season as you possibly can, because it will make a difference in the playoffs. You can't just be the seven seed, or you're going to have to travel more, or you won't get like, that yeah, first round by. You can't just do what you want, because like the way that I feel about it is like I hate it when like you'll watch a game that's like winnable for a team, but then like they'll mess up a few plays, and it'll just be like, ah, it's fine. Like we can lose this game. It's not a big deal. Like I, I hate watching that. Like, and the Cavaliers do that a lot, and like it's like they'll be in a close game in the fourth quarter, and they'll they'll you know they'll give up one run, and then rather than keep trying to get in it, they'll just give it up and they'll take the loss. And like I just feel like having a having a more rigid playoff system would just it would you know allow for that to go away, because like a team like Golden State, like to them it doesn't matter, right? Like if they to them it makes no difference if they're the one seed or the two seed or even the three seed or I'm honestly even the four seed because they could beat any team below them. Like if, if even if golden state is the four seed and they end up playing the five seed, they probably have, they, they're so good that they have just as much confidence that they can be the, beat the five seed as they do the eight seed. Like to them, it doesn't matter who they play. Um, and like, you know, like it, it feels like to this point, like you, you're seeding the, the purpose of seeding is to reward you. Like you get an easier matchup. Yes. But if a team is so good, it's it's not even really like an advantage because both teams are just so much worse that you just it really wouldn't make a difference. Yeah, definitely. And especially with the West being so tight, it's like every team that's not a top two seed in the Western Conference three through ten are all basically the same. So. Yeah, I 
I mean, it's just ridiculous that people are so insistent on sticking with the status quo, especially in the NBA, where you're always seeing changes. You see them get rid of the hack-a-shack rule, or they get rid of, like, there's just constant change, but then, like, they're not willing to change specific things for some reason, and that just doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, I agree. I, I feel like just something that prioritizes and incentivizes the regular season, I think, is the most important thing, because, like, uh, it just it's so long too that like 82 games you have to make it worth something so that people actually are in it for 82 games yeah definitely like uh, it, it'll be more interesting to follow like and just you know even like i don't know this is just something completely unrelated but maybe like you could even do like it, it just just for the regular season like you can make teams against you can make wins against better teams count for more um like, you know, in terms of games back, like, it could give you more of a cushion just so it incentivizes you to play harder for the good teams. You know what I mean? Oh, that'd be interesting. Like, you know, like, let's say, like, if, if like, the top, like, if you beat a team that's first in the conference, you get, like, rather than just getting half a game to your, uh, to your, like, games back, then you get a game. Like, you get a full. Hmm. Um, you know, I mean, that, that would, that would probably, that could be controversial because then people would even they they would just go weaker against weak teams and then just go harder against the better yeah. teams. But still, well, what if like you just, what if you just changed the tiebreaker system so that strength of victory was the number one tiebreaker instead of head to head? Yeah, head to head. The tiebreaker system is so strange, and I'm glad they like. I think it, what, what was it before? It was like if you won your division, you were automatically yes, yeah, like the Trailblazers thing where they were the number four seed, yeah. despite, and despite being worse than the four, five, sure. and six. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. That was the year that the Spurs fell to sixth, even yes. though they were third. And they really paid for it too, because they had to face the Clippers in the first round. Yeah, and then they lost, and then they couldn't. They didn't get their chance to repeat. Um, yeah, that would have been interesting. Like that. That honestly, that that might have ruined the 2015 playoffs. But um, I don't know. I just the NBA, the playoffs in general, I think just needs something a little bit different because it's just it's been this way for such a long time that I feel like it's gotten sort of like stale like i wouldn't say boring but i would definitely say it's stale because like it's like you it's just it's just like some people don't even watch the regular season at all and they end up just watching the playoffs like i think you yourself, that's me yeah you don't even watch the regular season because like what's the point like yeah you end up getting one through eight and it, it is what it is but like you know if there was more incentive to either get a higher seed it would make the games in the regular season much more competitive because i mean i'm someone who like i watch an nba game almost every single night and like it's just I just, it comes down to, I just take guesses on which one is the most competitive. And then like halfway through the game, I'll look at the score and it'll be like, oh, I'm going to switch the channel to this one because this one's more competitive. But it would really make it so that almost every team is competitive if you had a different playoff system. So, yeah, definitely. And I, to be honest, I'm like tempted to uh, just uh, follow my system this year and see how it would turn out. But we'll have to see if that could, and that comes up in follow up. But just to, to give the listeners an idea of what the actual tiebreakers are in the NBA, so they go to head-to-head first, then better division record if it's a you know, between two teams in within the division, then better conference record. Then, uh, oh, wow, this was a crappy website. They only had the first three. Here, here let me head <laughs> down. Another. It only goes to the first three, though. Like I feel like if it's past. Uh, okay, three, so here, here, here's the rest of them. Uh, head-to-head. Uh, oh wait, I already said that. Uh, one loss percentage versus uh, playoffs teams in the in their own conference. Uh, one loss percentage versus the playoff teams in our conference in the other conference, and then net points in all games. So, oh wow! Net points in all games. That's funny. Yeah. So like point differential. Yeah. 
which is a good tiebreaker. But that honestly, I feel like that should not that should be higher. I feel like yeah. Um, or maybe yeah, just do I mean, like yeah. a net net points uh, multiplied by a strength of victory. Like, but head to head is weird because like a head to head is a is a poor thing because like if, if if it comes down to if Houston and Golden State end up having the same record this year, it's going to come down to head to head and Houston will win it. But I mean that like that's sort of like I mean I think the Warriors played one game against them without Kevin Durant, so like you know like it's like yeah, and it, and it definitely comes up like why that matters so much when you have teams when you have a situation like the year that the free for six seeds in the East were all tied. And like you had to go uh, like head to head between all like three, all four of them, and like it was a ridiculous thing. But just like, the, I think today, I think this season that's going to be a big. It's going to be a big topic of discussion because there are probably going to be a lot. Oh yeah, of teams. like it's going to be super tight. Yeah, like there are probably going to be a ton of teams with like 47, 48 wins or something like that. Yeah. So like here, I, I, this is something I was going to try and transition to. Uh, give me your uh, list of tiebreakers for a playoff uh, seed right now. What do you mean? Like sure. so, like what? What would your so? Let's say you have any number of teams that are tied for a specific seed. What should be the criteria that they should use to determine who should be getting that seed? Honestly, I think above all, it should be record in your conference, simply because, like both conferences, I feel like have a disparity between the good and bad teams. So I feel like that's even in terms of like. Because, like, I think a, a big issue right now is, like, a team in the East will have a worse record than a team. Like, the eighth team in the East will have a worse record than the eighth team in the West, but they'll have they'll still be able to be in the playoffs because of, you know, how bad the conference is. But if you go by record, like, I think if you go by how they performed against their own conference, it gives you more of an idea of, like, okay, like, this is how they performed against their competition, and then this is how they performed against their competition. So I think head-to-head should be factored probably maybe, like, third And then in between, I would probably use, I would probably use like record against the other conference. Okay. Because record against the other conferences, I think, also a pretty good measure because it, it simply shows you how you competed against, you know, like those teams that you were allegedly better than if you're the better conference. And then fourth, I would use point differential because, you know, that just that just shows like you were able to win by this much, and that team was able to win by less. So. Yeah, not a fan I just, of. Uh, I don't think divisions really matter that much because you have some divisions that are much more difficult than others. Yeah, definitely. Like San Antonio and Houston are in the same division. Like that's that's ridiculous. Yeah, and I'm sure you remember that one year where like all five of those teams made the playoffs, and then like. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then I think even um, I'm not sure what I think the Lakers and Clippers are also in Golden State's division, right? And then like yeah, yeah you know, and then Portland as well. So like it's some like four of those teams. I uh, mind like. When the Lakers, like, let's assume the Lakers like make the playoff next year, or the year after, you're probably going to have all four of those teams in the playoffs, and then you're going to have, you know, you're probably going to have all eight of your playoff teams only from two divisions, if you, you know, so. Yeah, and my and my biggest problem with it is this isn't a baseball system where you're playing 95 games against the teams within your division. You're only playing like 24 games against the teams in your division out of an 82 game season. Also, the other thing about the NBA schedule in general that I feel I feel like needs some modification is that the fact that you only play two games against teams outside of your conference. Yeah, and and we'll get to that in a second. I'm just gonna give my tiebreakers real quick because that's actually a fantastic segue. I was gonna ask about that. So my tiebreakers would just be a net points times a strength of victory because I've completely attached to that at this point. I think that's a fantastic system and it uh, essentially matches the one in the EPL 
Like if you have like your point differential, as I was saying about uh, Pythagorean expectation, which is it's based on that. That that says a lot about like if you got lucky or something or like how how good you were doing because it's a lot more impressive to blow a team out like the 76ers are doing right now against the Nets than to win by one point, and then just multiply that by strength of victory because it's more impressive to win against good teams than bad teams. And then I say uh, go to a conference uh, one loss percentage. Then go to head-to-head, -head, and then if you still have problems, I don't know, flip a coin, and I don't really have anything past that. Yeah, the, the, I mean, honestly, flipping a coin is perfectly fair, like 50-50, yeah. so. Yeah, but uh, so I, I'm really curious to see what you think about the NBA schedule, because I was going to ask it, because there's a lot of talking uh, going around, like, oh, do we need to change the NBA schedule? Is it 82 games correct for the league? Uh, so what do you think about it? Uh, I think 82 is fine, um, but I, I do feel like there needs to be some balancing, whereas, like, like if you're the Warriors, like, you, you should not, if you're that good of a team, you shouldn't get to play four, you shouldn't get to pick up four easy wins against the Kings. Like, that's just not fair. You, you like, you should have to play, like, like, there's, there definitely needs to be a little bit more of a spreading of schedule where maybe, like, you play, I don't know, like, like, three games against... Like you know how like the NFL does it, and like they make like your your schedule like a, like they accommodate it to how good of a team you are. Like it changes from year to year. So, yeah, like, like you you play two games, two of your games are determined based on. Okay, so basically how it works is like the NBA, the NFL does like a rotating uh, schedule where you like each team has to face each uh, division in the. In like okay, so here's an example. So let's say one year like the NFC East has to play. The NFC South and then the AFC South, and then it also ha each team within that division plays another division in the other conference. Well, not sorry, not another conference. It would play like a team in the AFC North or like the AFC West. I guess it's determined on like a year-to-year -year basis, but it yeah. would it would match the performance of the teams in each uh, division. So the number one team from that previous year would put, play the number one in each of those divisions, number two to number twos, and they would just do that, and that's one way in which they can set up the schedule so it's more balanced. Exactly, because, like, if you're a team, like, if, if you're, uh, like, if you're a team, um, like Miami, right? Like, Miami, I think, has a pretty weak division. Like, they're surrounded with, like, I think, Charlotte, Orlando. Um, the Wizards? Some... No, not Ooh. the Wizards, my bad. And, and some, some other team. Like, basically, what I'm saying is, like, if you're the best team in your division, and then there are five teams in your division, and then you play four games against each of them, four games against the other four teams, like that's like, and you're the best team in your division by far. Like, if the rest of your division is complete, like, and the Warriors have had that benefit, I feel like, because the Lakers, Clippers, and uh, oh, the Clippers, I guess, this year, but you know, oh, it was the Wizards. Oh, <laughs> the Clippers, the Clippers, Kings, and uh, Lakers. Like those are teams that Golden State could easily beat four times in every every game. So like, it, it they shouldn't get to have. Not to mention the Suns. Oh yeah, the Sun. Yeah, like you know, like you you should not get to have that easy of a schedule if you're the best team. Like, I feel like that that obviously attributes to how many games you're able to win overall, which significantly impacts you know the one seed, two seed. So. I feel like you should probably have to, you should play more games against the better teams in your conference if you're one of the better teams in your conference. Like, rather than having to play, uh, like, rather than playing, um, like, Houston only three times, like, you should have to play Houston four times. And, rather, and, like, instead of playing, you know, Phoenix four times, you should play Phoenix twice. 
you know, like it, you should just, you should accommodate it to how, like, you shouldn't get to have an easier schedule just because you're better. Like everyone should play on a schedule that fits what can give them the best chance of being good. Cause that's what makes it the most fair. Like you should like, if, if you're just overwhelmingly talented, you're going to end up winning the most games and you shouldn't also be, get to benefit from having a super easy schedule. Like Golden, like Golden State, I don't, I, I feel like it, I feel like I, someone ranked it. And I feel like in the past couple of years, they've had like the 19th, like, hardest schedule yeah i'd believe it yeah the, the easier way to say that would i guess be like they've had like one of the 10th or 11th easiest schedules which i mean obviously like you can't tell me that that doesn't factor into how dominant they've been like if your schedule is easier you're obviously going to win more and like you know cleveland as well like there's no reason that cleveland should get to play the hawks four times a year if the hawks are horrible uh the hawks are actually in the southwest but this is someone like the actually cleveland's division is pretty good but yeah, yeah, like that's what I'm like. Cleveland's division is like Chicago, Detroit, Milwaukee, and uh, Pacers. Indiana. So like, you know, like when the East was actually pretty good, like that that would have been a hellacious division. Like, and like I'm not sure how good the Bucks were in like 2007 or whatever, but I mean the Pistons, Bulls, and like all those teams were pretty good in the late in the you know for the a better part of the 2000s. Yeah, it's a good point. So like. It, would you actually want to do a system like the NFLs, or would you want to just dissolve the divisions? Or if not dissolve them, just say, well, I guess you would have to if you were going to follow this suggestion that you just have every team in the conference play each other an equal amount of times and just keep the ratio between the East and the West the same. Yeah, I, I honestly, I would do that. because I, I feel like the divisions really only serve the purpose of, like, whether or not you won your division, it would help you seed. But if if you would help your seed, but now that that's gone, I feel like you could dissolve divisions in general and just do it like you should. You should play like based on how good you are. You should play a tougher schedule. So yeah, I, I would. I would probably have you play every team in your not every team in your comp. Like you could keep divisions if like, but if your division is extremely weak, then you should play less games in your division if you're a top team. Well, how how would you scale that? I don't, I'm honestly not sure how it would be done, but I would probably, like, if I were to just look at the year, like, right now, right, like, rather than having Golden State play, uh, let, I think they, they like, like, like I said earlier, like, rather than playing Houston, let, rather than playing Houston three times, you should play Houston four times, rather than playing Oklahoma City uh, three times, you should play them four times, and then rather than playing uh, Sacramento four times, you should only play Sacramento twice, rather than playing Phoenix four times, you should play Sacramento, or Phoenix twice, like, you should basically just, like, Whoever, whichever, like, the, the best teams are should have to play the other best teams. Like, and you could do the divisions. Like, rather than having a division based on location, you could do, like, divisions based on, like, wins because then you also get more competition because, like, you and I, last last week, we were watching a Phoenix uh, and uh, Atlanta game, and because both of those teams were pretty bad, like, it ended up being a pretty competitive game because they're similar, like, in terms of, you know, how good they are. So if you did that within each conference and you just grouped it, like, based on, like, okay, like, these are the teams that are expected to be really good. Let's put all of them in the same division so they play the most amount of times against each other. Like, basically, like, honestly, like, you could just straight up do it. If you have uh, you have 15 teams in each conference, you could do um, three divisions of five in each conference. Like, the top five is one division, and then the next five are the next division, and the bottom five are another division. Oh, I, I really like that, actually. You just uh, reset the divisions every year? Yeah, you would reset the divisions every year based on how the seeding was last year. Or, like, but, you know, given, like, completely, like, if a team, like, blows themselves up over the offseason and, like, you, they trade away all the, like, then you can, you could, you could set the division based on 
because you know like obviously the nba people like especially now that they're looking at things like gambling like they could just look at vegas and like see how what vegas projects the best teams will be and then put the top five in one division and then all those teams play each other four times because then it makes the schedule more competitive and it shows you really who is the best team and who's able to compete the best against with their level because like even among bad teams like if you're the if you're a really bad team and but you still like if you're a bad team but you're better than all the other bad teams and it shows you that you're the best of the bad teams so it shows you how close you are and like what what else you need to maybe you know break into the next division but you know obviously they would have they would have to also figure out like tiebreakers for teams like would you put this team in the top division of this team in the top division like you know there would be but i feel like the easiest way to do it would just be based on seating so like <clears throat> this year's sort of a bad example in the West, but like in the East, for example, you could just put the top five teams in those divisions because I feel like there is a pretty clear separation between teams like, you know, like Washington is, is still pretty, you know, above Miami and Milwaukee and stuff like that. So, yeah, my, my only problem with uh, doing it based on uh, projections is that sets up like a ton of corruption. Like uh, some, yeah, some it, team. It, it does. Yeah, that, that's true. So you, you don't even have to do that. You could just do it based off of... Uh, yeah, I would just do it based off winning percentage. You could just do it based off winning percentage from the year before and then uh, use the same tiebreakers that you did the year before in the playoffs. Um, but, you know, I, I feel like the league would have to accommodate for teams that blow them like blow up over the offseason. Like, like, for example, like I don't think the Thunder should have like remained a team in the top division after getting rid of Kevin... Or not getting rid of, but after losing Kevin Durant. And uh, like the Clippers shouldn't have to stay in a high division of losing Chris Paul, for example. But, you know, you, you'd have to do some accommodation for that. But it wouldn't have to be by projection. They would just have to figure out their own thing for it. I, I don't know. I, I feel like it's not that big of a deal. But if you're really insistent on that, you can just say Adam Silver gets executive privilege on that and he can, like, change. Yeah, can, I mean, he gets to choose who all-star replacements are, so I feel like he, he should have power if he wanted to. Yeah, but no, that would, that would be way better than what, what we're currently doing. Would you uh, keep it the same amount of... Would you like? I'm guessing you would have like the divisions be called like the super division and then like the middle division and then the low division. But like, would you have it be the same amount of games that you have to play within your division and then like the same amount within your conference and then the same against yeah. the other? I would keep all of it the same. I think the only thing that I would change is just how many times you play good teams versus bad teams. So you can just play all the teams in your division four times and then play all the teams that are in your conference three times and then play all the other teams from the other conference twice. Like, I feel like it's fine if you, I guess like. To a degree, it's fine to only play the other team. Or honestly, like, you could just do it also based on, like, rather than having to face a really bad team three times, like, let's say Golden State faces, uh, you know, uh, who's bad in the West? Um, like, uh, the, like Dallas. Like, let's say Warrior, the Warriors face Dallas three times. Rather than having, rather than facing Dallas three times, you would face a top four team or a team from the top division in the East three times. Like does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, I see what you're saying. And then you would, and then you would play the worst division in your conference two times a year. Like yeah. if you're a team in the if you're a team in the best division in your conference, then you play the teams in both of the bottom divisions two times each, the next division three times each, and then the top divisions four times each. Yeah, uh, that... I'm not sure what the total of that would be, but something like that. No, I think that I think that's a great system, and like that's really what I love about this podcast is just hearing all these fantastic ideas that. And like I haven't even heard it before. Like just yeah, yeah I, I'm just I was just kind of I always think about how the NBA can be more competitive because I, I just hate the fact that the, like because I feel like also if you have things like this in place, it sort of also like it also helps to combat the issue of player movement impacting parity so much because like 
you know, when Kevin Durant went to the Warriors, it was just sort of like, okay, like call the season over. It's done. Like they're the champions. Yeah. Like this would sort of, you know, help prevent that to a, to a lesser degree, but you know, still like it, obviously Kevin Durant's season, first season with Golden State wouldn't have been as easy if you know, he played a total of 20 something games against teams that were completely awful. Like that's, that's a fourth of the season. And like, you just got to sort of coast and just completely dominate a fourth of the season. But if, if a fourth of your season is against tough teams consistently, then like, I mean, obviously you're going to have a harder time winning the championship and it really shows who's, who's a better team. And it doesn't really let you escape by just having talent easily. So. Yeah. And it wouldn't even hurt uh, your uh, travel and traveling that much because you're still within the same conference. Yeah, it really wouldn't because, you know, like, I mean, a flight from California to Texas is not, like, horrendously awful. Like, I'm not, that's the thing, like, you could, that's why I say that you could still lay off having new teams in the East like that because, like, the travel for that would be really difficult. But you can still adjust it to have, because, like, I mean, there are teams, like, when teams go on road trips and play horrible backs-to-backs, they end up having bad travel anyway, so it really wouldn't be that big of a problem. Like, I, I guess, like, you, the worst situation would be, like, I mean, if Golden State had to fly and play a, uh, New Orleans, but if you if you space the game if you space those four games out across the season, it really doesn't end up being an issue. Yeah, and like that's always my uh, big uh, point of criticism with uh, team uh, with uh, people that say we should switch to a one for sixteen uh, system in the uh, for the playoffs beyond the rivalry uh, point uh, is just that the travel it, you would have to change how it would work for the regular season you would have to change the schedule so that you're playing an equal amount of uh, eastern conference and western conference teams and i think that does throw the travel out of whack it's just too much yeah so i i know one of adam silver's uh, points and this is probably going to be our last point uh, is that is that uh hey like the nba should really uh, find a way to make like a mid-season tournament like you know how it, it how european football does like they have uh, for an example like the in the uk they will have so you have like the english premier league and then you'll have the fa cup which is just like a domestic tournament where any uh, professional team in uh, british soccer can uh, not british soccer uh, english soccer can enter and then the winner is like the best uh, team in england and then you have like the European, uh, not the European, uh, the you know, European Champions League, yeah. And then you have like the Europa League, and then you also have the World Cup going on, and then you also have the, no, actually that's about it. But like you have all these different tournaments, and even if you're going to be like the runner-up in your uh, domestic league, and uh, then you can still uh, win the Champions League, or you can win the FA Cup, or you can win the Europa League, and like there's just a bunch of different things that you're competing for. And I think that's uh, uh, that's a lot of the reason why they're still keeping this division thing around, you know, so that uh, even teams that are like the four seed in the playoffs or something, they can be like, hey, we can hang our division banner. So, like, do you think the NBA needs to be doing more for midseason tournaments? And if so, what would that look like to you? I mean, I, I personally don't think so. I just feel like you had if you added more to the regular season and like had a midseason tournament like that. I feel like it would just give players less time to rest. Um, I just feel like it would sort of make the season a little bit more difficult. Um, if you made it optional, however, I feel like, you know, because that, that would just sort of be up to, like, the team itself, like, whether or not they want to enter all of their players. But, you know, if all of their players are willing to do it, then obviously you shouldn't be able to, you know, like, they should be able to do it if they want to. Um, but I don't think it should be a mandatory thing. Yeah, and you wouldn't be willing to take away regular season games for that? I probably wouldn't. I, I, 
I mean, well, it depends. Like, if you keep the regular season like we have it right now, then I guess it would be fine because we have so many meaningless regular season games. But if we do the thing that you and I were just talking about, about making the regular season more meaningful, then no, I wouldn't. Okay. Yeah, but that's basically how I feel. I, I would love to see what the NBA would look like with a midseason tournament, but I just can't think of anything that they would be able to do with it. Yeah, the, the same thing. Same thing here. So. All right. Uh, do you have any uh, closing thoughts? No, I'm good. It was a great talk today. We had, we had some riveting discussion. Yeah, we had some fantastic points. If you guys didn't listen to, to the entire three hours, you're going to want to rewind because this was a good one. And yes, yeah. this was. Yeah, and I thank, I thank Arad once again for coming on. This was a really enjoyable podcast, definitely worth rescheduling for. And if you guys enjoyed it just as much as we did, make sure to give us a five-star review on iTunes. We really appreciate it. And, hey, go to our YouTube channel at a top, and just you know, type into the search uh, bar, uh, Topical uh, Rationalizing the Monkey Brain. It'll come up easily, and you can go back and catch up on all of the podcasts that you've missed and even get a little unedited sneak peek on uh, all of them. And yeah, uh, we really appreciate you listening, and we look forward to seeing you again next week. Bye-bye.